This is the Bigger Pockets Podcast, show 374. Cash flowing real estate is protection. And so, yeah, there are a lot of things in real estate, and I'm not saying everything, we, we can talk about this. There are a lot of things in real estate that aren't going to work well right now, but cash flowing assets, cash flowing real estate are going to work well, whether you're in a recession, whether you're in an expansion or anywhere in between. You're listening to Bigger Pockets Radio, simplifying real estate for investors large and small. If you're here looking to learn about real estate investing without all the hype, you're in the right place. Stay tuned and be sure to join the millions of others who have benefited from BiggerPockets.com, your home for real estate investing online. All right. What's up, guys? Jay Scott, Scott Trench. Hey, welcome to the show, guys. How's it going, guys? How's it going? Good to be here. Good, good. So uh, the world is changing rapidly right now. A lot of our listeners, a lot of our members on Bigger Pockets, on the forums, on the blog comments are asking a lot of questions. People are rightfully a little bit nervous and freaked out right now. Uh, other people are looking and saying, is this the opportunity we've been waiting for in terms of our, should we start buying right now uh, or should we start selling right now? So that's the whole point of today's show is just to really dive into what's going on with the, the current state of the world. Uh, before I actually jump into all that stuff, guys, though, I do want to, first of all, welcome my co-host of the day, Mr. David Green. Hello, David Green. Hello, Brandon. What's going on, man? Um, thank you for remembering that I exist. I was like... <laughs> I am happy that you exist. And uh, I know you're, you're, what's the word, in place? You're... Shelter in place. Sheltering in place down there. Down, down the hatches. Mm. What's all the other things that they say in the Midwest that are really cool that we don't always hear out there? <laughs> I don't know. Right. Duck and cover. Yeah, it's it's rough. Uh, all right, so so this show is going to be a little bit different. It's kind of a roundtable discussion. Before we get into today's show, though, I want to get to today's quick tip. tip. All right, today's quick tip is brought to you by Scott Trench. Go, Scott. Oh, you didn't tell me about this. My quick <laughs> tip today is invest in real estate from a position of financial strength. All right, good quick tip. I like to throw quick tips at David at the last second without telling him, so I thought I'd throw it at you today. I'd say like 40% of our quick tips are absolutely Brandon, just like hot potato, boom, go. there you go. What are you going to do? Yeah, we probably should do more quick tips that are uh, prepared ahead of time from our guests. I mean, from our users, uh, listeners, that's what mm. we should probably work towards, but we'll get there. That's a great segue into today's show. That is a great segue, great segue. It's a great segue, guys, into today's <laughs> show. Uh, and... We're going to, again, we're going to talk about the, the virus, what's happening, how that affects real estate investors and all the good stuff. All right. Jay Scott is here. Hello, Jay. Hey, how's it going, Brandon? How, how you doing, guys? Man, we're good. Uh, Jay is one of the smartest people in this room right here and also on Facebook in general. And I say that because if you guys follow Jay on Facebook, like his posts are like intelligent. Uh, he's a smart dude. So we had to grab him today. He also happened to write a book, wrote a book, write a, yeah, he write a book called Recession, what was it? Recession... Proof real estate recession. investing? Yep, recession-proof real estate investing. All right, and so we'll talk a little bit about that today. What's better than low money down? No money down. Now through rent-to-retirement, you can buy a brand new construction turnkey rental property for no money down. Wait, hold on, this can't be right. I need to double-check with Zach, rent-to-retirement CEO. Oh, hey, Rob. Zach, how the heck are you selling turnkey rental properties for $0 down? <laughs> it's not that complicated, Rob. 
Rent to Retirement has new construction properties up to $20,000 below retail prices. We also have investor loans with rates as low as 3.99% and down payment options as low as 5% or sometimes even zero money down. You get all the cash flow, appreciation, and equity for as little as zero money down. That's an infinite return. Oh, wait, wait. Let me get on this before we tell it to the whole Bigger Pockets audience. Just head to renttoretirement.com. That's renttoretirement.com or text REI to 33777. That's REI to 33777 to learn more about how you can get started investing with no money down today. Get your next new construction property at a steep discount or invest with no money down. Head to renttoretirement.com today. Whenever I used to travel, I would get that creeping feeling that I locked my back door. How do I know my property is going to be safe while I'm away? But not anymore, thanks to Simply Safe Home Security. I'm about to go on a three-week trip to Copenhagen, but am I tripping about my trip? Nope. With award-winning security and peace of mind from Simply Safe, I don't need to worry. Simply Safe is a super amazing alarm system that I actually installed in my house myself personally in less than 30 minutes. And there's so much peace of mind knowing that there's something in place to protect my homes, my goods, and my John Mayer shrine. Simply Safe systems have high-tech sensors that detect break-ins, fires, and floods, indoor and outdoor cameras to keep watch night and day, 24-7 professional monitoring at less than $1 a day. Plus, Simply Safe professional monitoring agents can even help stop crime in real time by speaking to intruders through the wireless indoor camera. Hey, hey, bud, get out of here. It's like that, but it's a lot better, I imagine. And if you buy the system and you don't love it, you can get a full refund with Simply Safe's 60 day money back guarantee. Simply Safe has given me and many of our listeners real peace of mind, and I want you to have it too. Right now, get 20% off of any new Simply Safe system with Fast Protect monitoring at simplysafe.com/pockets. There's no safe like Simply Safe. Finding rental property insurance has been a headache for the past few years. You know the feeling. You're scrambling, calling 20 different insurance agencies in a dozen different cities, struggling to protect your portfolio at the right cost. But I'm going to tell you a little secret that'll change everything. Veteran investors don't go through the everyday insurance companies. They just use NREG. NREG, that's N-R-E-I-G, provides insurance solely for real estate investors. They've built the largest insurance program in the country for residential tenant-occupied, vacant, and renovation properties. The best part? You can put all your properties on one insurance schedule and one monthly bill. And you can add, change, or remove properties without having to cancel one policy and purchase another. They insure properties from single-family rentals, up to 20-unit multifamily dwellings, vacation rentals, mobile homes, condos, and more. Trade catchy jingles for cash flow with insurance made for investors. Visit nreg.com slash bppod to request a proposal. N-R-E-I-G dot com slash B-P-P-O-D. Hey guys, real quick before we get to this uh, discussion today, I'm actually recording this thing right now, this second here, after we just got finished recording the show. And I wanted to put this in here for a really important reason. This is a super long show. It's like two and a half hours long. But the first hour we spend really talking a lot about like what's going on in the world right now, the economy from a macro level. Uh, We'd have a little bit into the micro stuff, but really it's like a macro level. The second half of the show though, starting at about an hour in, is where we dive into questions from like listeners just like you. In fact, we actually asked people to send us messages, like voicemails about their questions. So we're actually going to play those questions and answer it for like an hour and a half of just Q&A. So here's the deal. If you don't care about the macro stuff, you already know what's going on in the economy. You understand what qualitative easing, is that the word I'm looking for, is? Like, if you understand all that stuff, that's fine. You can skip ahead to the hour mark, uh, right at about an hour, maybe hour one, hour two, like an hour and a minute or so in. Skip ahead there and just listen to the questions on how it affects real estate investors in today's uh, world. 
You can do that. Or if you got the full two and a half hours, listen to the entire show because you guys are going to love this. Let's get to this uh, meat of today's show. We're talking about the effect on the economy, on what real estate investors should be doing. And so I just want to start, kind of get an idea so people know who you guys are in case you don't know who Jay Scott is, who you don't know who Scott Trench is. Uh, can you guys explain real quick like just who you are and where do you live and what's the, and we'll add on, what does the world look like around you right now? I know uh, we'll start with Jay. You're down there in uh, what, Sarasota, Florida? Yeah, I'm down here in in sunny Florida. So for those that don't know me, I'm probably best known for flipping a whole bunch of houses, written a few books for bigger pockets, including the Flipping Houses book, the Estimating book, Negotiating book, and the Recession Proof book. And I tend to be an economy nerd. So I think a lot of people think I'm really smart about the economy. I just read a lot and I'm, I'm really good at processing data and regurgitating information. So I, I wouldn't say I'm, I'm that smart. I'm just, I'm just well-read. How about that? Um, <laughs> okay. So I, I am in sunny Florida down here. It's kind of crazy. We are, I'm in Sarasota, Florida. This is where kind of all the old people retire to in, in, in yeah, this is just where all the old people retire to. So you would think that people down here would be taking tremendous precautions because that's kind of the, the at-risk demographic. And up until a couple of days ago, we weren't seeing that. Like, uh, this is also a very, uh, we're, we're the number one beach in the country. So we get a lot of tourism down here. A lot of people come uh, down uh, here. Uh, no, to, no, number one by, by population or by quality? That's the real question. Uh, so according to <laughs> TripAdvisor, Siesta Key Beach, number oh. one beach in the country. Maybe it's only contiguous uh, mm. uh, lower yeah. 48 states. We're not going to, so, we're going to leave trust out. Me, I'd much rather yeah. be where you are. Um <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so maybe it's a lot of people come down here and they're on vacation and so they, they're trying to get away from it, but it's crazy. We're, I mean, our bars are packed, our restaurants are packed, and yeah. we really haven't seen the social distancing that I think a lot of other places are seeing, at least not until the last couple of days. All right. Interesting. Uh, and I'd like to ask why that is, but before we get there, Scott Trench, tell us about yourself and uh, what you're like. Sure. So I'm the, you may know me, I'm the president and CEO of Bigger Pockets. Uh, I've written a book called Set for Life on how to build a, a financial foundation capable of moving towards early retirement. And I am a co host of the Bigger Pockets Money Show podcast with Mindy Jensen, where we talk about how to build, again, that financial foundation um, capable of supporting investments like those in, in real estate. Yeah, okay. uh, excited to be here. And then, uh, you know, we're here in Denver, Colorado. And Denver, you know, I think is probably one of the cities that is reacting pretty aggressively to this. All bars and restaurants have been shut down. There's no dine-in options anymore. Things evolved really rapidly last week. I think that was the week of March 9th. And you know, Monday, Tuesday that week, I was thinking, hey, things are probably going to settle down into normal. We'll see how this goes. And by Thursday and Friday, I had opted to actually shut down the Bigger Pockets office, I have all of our employees work remote, uh, kind of following the timeline of the NBA there uh, in terms of my acknowledgement of the the real impact this thing is going to have. So maybe a little little slow there uh, to, to kind of admit that that was going to be the, the case, but then rapidly reacting from there. Well, the hard thing is, I think for all of us is that like, for, I mean, how many times a month do we see these like posts from CNN, Fox, whatever, that the world is ending? Like something is going to kill the world every single month. Uh, and so it's, it's almost like the boy who cried wolf scenario where I think all of us didn't quite believe it. Even when this whole virus thing started coming out, it's like, well, I know it's probably a bad virus, but so is global warming. I mean, that's going to be rough too. And so is, you know, this thing and that thing. Uh, and so I feel like anyway, like most people probably didn't take it as seriously as they should have. I don't know. When, Jay, when did you first realize like, oh, this is like, this is bad. 
Well, it's interesting because I've kind of been tracking this since January. Again, I, I read a lot of stuff. And so there's been grumblings about this since since January. But like you said, it's it's very much media is sensationalized so much these days. And, and regardless of what your your political viewpoints are, you're going to get news that is going to pander to whatever your beliefs are. Yeah. And so I haven't known what to believe. And it's one of those things that even to this day, I see a lot of people on my Facebook feed who are, they, they're, they're questioning and they're doubting and they're skeptical about whether they should believe what's going on. It certainly feels like the, the more news that we're getting, the more data that we're getting from around the world, that this is something that should be taken very seriously, it, it's one of those things you don't blame people for questioning. You don't blame people for for having some level of skepticism because like you said, every day there is a the the sky is falling and generally it's 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 a pandering to to whatever economic or political belief uh, your source of media might have. Yeah. I was just commenting the other day when I was watching the news, I realized I can't remember the last time I turned on the news. This is years. And it didn't say breaking news on like the news channel, right? It's like back in the day, like breaking news meant like, you know, someone important got shot. And today it's like breaking news, Kim Kardashian, you know, did whatever. And uh, so it's, it's hard to believe that. But I think we all agree today that we are in a, there is a problem today. Like there, I mean, things are, are rough. We're not the conspiracy theorists here on this uh, panel here. So, uh, let, let's so I, go ahead. And let, me, let me throw something out. And I don't want to, I'm, I'm far from an expert on anything medical or anything sure. virus related, but there was for anybody out there, there was a good article that came out, a study from Imperial College that came out yesterday. Today's Wednesday. This is, this episode is coming out on Thursday. So the article came out on Tuesday, which kind of talks about the modeling that they use that led the government to kind of taking the precautions that they're taking. So for anybody that's really interested in how did we get from, maybe this isn't that big of a problem to we need to shut down the country. Um, and I know a lot of people are skeptical because it feels like we got there way too quickly. This article, and um, and we'll put it in the show notes. I'll, I'll, send a, I'll send a link. This article does a really good job of talking about the models that have come out recently that have indicated that this really could be a huge threat. It talks about potentially up to 90, if, if we don't take any containment efforts or, or, or um or, or procedures, this could potentially affect up to 90% of the population, up to about 1% death rate for the highest uh, at-risk category, especially because without precautions, we're basically looking at a situation where there are one-thirtieth the number of ventilators we would need to, mm -hmm. to protect people. So people dying, not necessarily because the virus is killing them, but because our healthcare system is overburdened and potentially seeing up to 4 million deaths if we took no precautions whatsoever. So it was really it was a sobering article and, and it had some really interesting models and it does a good job of explaining how we got from not really taking this seriously for a lot of us, including me, not taking it seriously enough to now we're taking this tremendously serious. And, and so it, it, it answers some of those questions. Yeah. Hey, on that note, just in case, because again, a lot of people are, are wondering, like, what's the point of the social distancing? David, can you actually explain the analogy? Because you're the analogy guy like you used about the restaurant industry. Remember that we talked the other day? Oh uh, yeah. Okay. So when I worked in restaurants, one of the things that I remember was if tables, if I was, I was a waiter as tables come in, if I had a five to eight minute break between tables, I had enough time to go get their drink order, put it in the computer, go do something else, go pick up their drinks, bring it out. Now they've had enough time to look at the menu. I can take their food order, put the next thing in. 
and then move on to the next table. When I would get four tables at the same time, if I could handle four tables very easily, but not if they all came at the same time because I can't take all of their drink orders at the same time. I can't put all of their cocktail orders in. The bartender cannot make all four of them at the same time. Boom, you get a delay like a bottleneck. And a big piece of being successful in business, like Jake could probably attest to this, is managing those points where you bottleneck. If you have a whole bunch of employees that all need to get paid at the same time, but you don't have money coming into your business, even though your business is overall profitable, you can get in big trouble. You don't have enough. So managing like the flow of money, the flow of work. If, if I have seven people that all called me today and said, David, I need to list my house. I would be in trouble mm-hmm. because I, I have to go run seven CMAs and see what seven people's houses are worth and make time to go on seven appointments. And each of them has a bunch of fears that will probably take several hours to work through. And now I ran out of time in the day. But if I had seven appointments over seven days or even three or four days, not a problem. That, I wouldn't even feel the impact of it. Which is why, so, yeah, I was going to say, which is why like, right. you know, three or four million Americans die every year anyway, like just naturally. But if they all die within the same... But it's spaced yeah, out. Yeah, it's all right? within the same And, and hospitals yep. can handle a lot of people, but not all at the same time. Mm-hmm. They, you come in, you need a bed, you get better, and you leave. Well, what the government is worried about is that everyone's coming at once. We won't have beds for them. And what I've heard is this is happening in Italy right now, and people are literally dying in the hallways because they can't get to... You know, the, the virus causes respiratory problems. They can't get to a ventilator. They all came at one time. So the point of the quarantine was to try to slow how many people are all coming in the restaurant and wanting a table at once. We're trying to keep everyone home because we're all going to get sick. I'm just planning on I'm going to get sick. Most of us are going to get sick. I think no one knows, but the numbers I saw were half the population is probably going to, to catch the virus. But as long as that happens over an extended period of time, the healthcare system will be strained, but they'll be able to save a lot of lives. What we don't want is everybody in the same three-week period all rushing in there and having a panic. So that's the idea behind the quarantine. And where I live in the San Francisco Bay Area, they take that really serious. They've closed down basically like seven Bay Area counties and they don't want us doing anything that isn't essential. Yeah. Yep. A scary number that I saw yesterday, and again, I don't want to harp on this because I, I know we have other things to talk about, but uh, apparently they tested everybody from five NBA teams, all players from five NBA teams. And in theory, because NBA hasn't really been, their season hasn't started, they, or they haven't, uh, they haven't been practicing, they haven't all been together. In theory, they're relatively disparate groups of people who, who aren't associating giving the virus to each other. What they found was, I think it was 9.7% of the players had been infected by the virus. And this is kind of the first time that they've done widespread testing on a group of people that didn't really think they were infected um, and that weren't necessarily closely related. And what they found was that we saw this, again, close to 10% infection rate. So it makes us wonder if there's a large percentage of the population right now that's walking around infected. Luckily, the the mortality rate for those under 60 or 70 is really, really small. But if all of us are walking around infected, even if we don't know it, we're potentially infecting others who have a much higher risk, those that are older, those that are that that have compromised immune systems. So so it's it's just I thought that was a really good data point. And again, I'll try and find the link to that that we can put in the show notes. All right. So let's shift in a little bit and talk about what this means. First of all, Jay, maybe we can start with you on what are you seeing in the economy? And then I'll ask Scott, you the same thing. Like, what are you seeing in the economy right now? Obviously, I mean, most of us know the stock market has been rough, uh, but what does that mean? 
Yeah. So let me start by nobody has any idea. I mean, I, I get the question many, many times a day, where are we headed? What does this mean? What's going to happen? And so I can throw out some data. I can throw out some ideas. I can certainly tell you what other people who are a lot smarter than I am are thinking and saying, but anything I say now is likely to change next week, next month, six months from now. But certainly what we're seeing is a whole lot of economic turmoil. Stock market is is kind of crumbling, and a lot of people say that the economy is a, a reflection. Or the economy impacts the stock market. The stock market starts tumbling when the economy kind of uh, starts to shift. But Ray Dalio, who is, is is an economist that I highly respect, he he likes to say that it's actually the other way around. A lot of times, it's the stock market that impacts the economy, because when the stock market starts to shift, it changes our perceptions, our 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 confidence in the economy. It changes how much disposable income we think we have, even though losing a lot of money in our 401ks or losing a lot of money in the stock market might not impact us day to day. It changes our perception of how much money we think we have, what our net worth is, what our retirement plans are, and it gets us to start spending differently. So the stock market in this case likely isn't a reflection of where the economy was. The economy was pretty strong a couple of weeks ago, but now the, the stock market is shifting. That's likely to have a big impact on our economy. Additionally, I mean, we all know businesses are shutting down restaurants, bars, tourism, airlines, uh, Disney World shut down. I, I posted yesterday that basically Las Vegas is shut down. So all the casinos are closed. Um, just some some personal anecdotes. I have a friend who runs a Hilton hotel here in, in, uh, in Florida and And their occupancy has dropped from mid-90s down to about mid-30s. And so they laid off 50 people yesterday, and Hilton has told them that if it drops any further, they're probably going to lay off the entire staff, save for one or two people to flush toilets and keep the the building safe. So that's going on around the the country. I've read that we could potentially see short-term unemployment rates spike to up to 20%, which is just unheard of, one out of five people literally being out of a job. And that's just employees. If you think about it, a lot of us are also business owners. A lot of us are small business owners. And I'm certainly not saying... It's worse for small business owners, but they face their own challenges. Small business owners can lay off their employees and and not have to pay their employees, but a lot of times they're still, they have inventory sitting on the shelves. It might be perishable inventory, especially if you're a restaurant. They're paying their their property costs. They have to lease their buildings or they're paying their mortgages on their buildings. They're paying for their cars. They're paying for their insurance. So we talk about 20% potentially unemployment rate. That doesn't factor in the employers, the small business owners who are getting crushed as well. So, um, Um, Certainly short term, I think what we're seeing is going to be a tremendous shock to the system. We often talk about the the health of the economy being measured in what we call GDP, gross domestic product. And that's kind of a measurement of the, the entire output of our entire economy. And what we like to see is we like to see that grow quarter over quarter. Our, our, our economy grows a little bit every quarter and generally 2%, 3% is kind of a nice normal number. If we see negative growth, if we see um, that, that, that economic output like contract for two quarters in a row, we typically refer to that as a recession. That's the, the technical definition of a, of a recession. These days, we're talking about in Q1, which is basically uh, January, February actually had some very strong numbers, but March is going to have some extremely rough numbers. In Q1, we may see 0% growth. We may see a little bit positive, a little bit negative. But talk is in Q2, we could literally see negative 5, negative 7, negative 8% growth, which is akin to what we saw in 2008. And it's akin to some of the the worst times that we've seen. Back in the 80s, we saw negative 10% growth for a quarter. So, But the big question 
that everybody kind of asks is, okay, it's pretty clear we're going to see some really negative short-term impacts here. Uh, Unemployment, wages, people not having enough money, businesses potentially going out of business, GDP growth slowing. The big, big, big question is, is it going to be short-lived? Or when we get kind of over the hump of all all this virus stuff, whether it be July, August, or later in the year, are we going to see a quick recovery? And that's the question that everybody's asking. Are we going to see that quick recovery? And I think it boils down to to one of two things. One, and we can talk about this, it, it boils down to what the government and our quote unquote central bank does to try and alleviate the strain. And we can talk about what they can do. But the second piece is how are consumers going to react? Right now, we have the highest uh, consumer debt in history at somewhere around, I think it's $9 trillion or $10 trillion. And we have the highest corporate debt in history, somewhere around 14 or $15 trillion. Is this going to cause people to start not being able to make mortgage payments, not be able to make car payments, not be able to make credit card payments? And the answer is, if, if the answer is yes, does that snowball? Does that missed car payment or credit card payment lead to additional financial struggle that causes the next month missing it and the next month missing it? And does that whole thing have a domino effect that kind of pulls the entire economy down? Or can we stabilize things enough and do something so that we're, we're helping Americans not miss their mortgage and card payments and credit card payments, or if they are missing them, that it doesn't domino. And, and when we actually come out on the backside of this whole virus thing, can we start to grow again quickly um, without seeing that domino effect or that snowball effect downwards? You know, Scott and I actually interviewed Annie Duke on the Bigger Pockets yeah. she's, podcast. She's a friend and, of mine, by the way. Very smart. Yeah, man. Annie's awesome. Yeah. Uh, and what her basic philosophy was, if you didn't hear that, is that life is a lot like poker. And there's a lot of lessons you can take out of poker that you can apply to life. And I think that that's very applicable to right now because poker is a way of being successful in a world of uncertainty. You do not know what cards you're going to get. You do not know what cards the other person has. You do not know what cards are going to come after this round of betting and what's going to come next. You don't know what other people will be betting. You are forced to operate in a world of uncertainty using odds and reading different scenarios in order to be successful. And that's an incredibly good skill to have because as we're all seeing right now, the markets do not respond well to uncertainty. Why is the stock market falling? Well, it's not that the... The CEOs of the major companies in the world are all just going to get sick and die. It's because everybody thinks, well, the stock market's going to go down and that causes everyone to sell and then everybody else has to sell. And like Jay was saying, the market psychology is a huge piece of what drives the economy in the, in the short term. So what I'd like to talk about is not just... Because what I'm getting at is we don't know what cards are coming. Like Jay said, mm, it could yeah. become a snowball thing that gets really bad. It could just shore up in a couple of weeks and it's not that big of a deal. But we don't need to know what cards are coming, just like Annie doesn't need to know what cards are coming. What Annie has to know is, how do I play the cards I have? How do I know when I bet bigger? And how do I know when I pull back? And I'd like to kind of steer the conversation in a direction where we talk about when you get these cards, this is the right move to make. These are principles that work no matter what, when when you're investing real estate or when you're playing poker, because there's always a move to make. Brandon and I talk about this all the time. We mean it. In any market, there's a way to structure deals. We're going into a change. Could be a long time. Could be a short time. There's a way to do it. Like One thing I was thinking about today is right now is a great time to get seller financing because the sellers are going to be scared. I don't know if I can make my payment. That asset that they had that we all wanted could very quickly become an anchor to them that they don't want to have anymore because they're worried that their client isn't going to be able to make the payment great times to say, Hey, I can make the payment for you if you can give me the property. 
So on that note, Scott, can you talk to us a little bit about what the members of Bigger Pockets' concerns are, what questions are being asked out there, and how we can start addressing some of those? Sure. Yeah. So you have to remember when you're thinking about a bigger pockets listener, right? You guys are listening, you know, and everyone's different. Everyone's got an issue, but typically our users are making between 50 and $200,000 a year in household income. So that upper middle class earner, typically they're investing in things like 401k stocks and real estate investments. Not very few people are actually in that. There's a lot of small business owners, those types of folks that are in, in that, in that kind of category. Right. And when you think about you know, the first people to be impacted by what Jay was talking about there, I think it's going to be your hourly employees, right? And they're, they're the ones who are going to begin missing rent payments, which obviously could impact investors on bigger pockets. And that's a major concern and topic you're seeing going on in the forums. But, you know, for a long time, I've thought, and I still continue to think that if they're the first hit first and hardest, the, the second most hit folks are going to be your homeowners who do not own substantial other assets like investments in stocks or real estate, right? And so they're going to be the ones that are going to be the first to get hit by foreclosures and those types of things. And then the third group of people impacted downstream, you know, I think are, are real estate investors. Most of our users, I think, are, are reasonably well capitalized. You know, you're not seeing a lot of folks out there that have no reserves whatsoever. Otherwise, they haven't been listening to the Bigger Pockets podcast or the Bigger Pockets Money Show podcast. But we are, there is a lot of talk about, hey, how do I handle a situation around where the government steps in and prevents evictions? Right? Mm-hmm. Do I then begin to work with my tenants there? There's a lot of un, you know uncertainty is the word of the day. We have no idea what's going to happen going forward. So there's a lot of uncertainty around a lot of new investors or people buying their first, second, third property, wondering, hey, should I close? Should I continue closing, or should I try to find a way to back out? Should I begin getting aggressive right now? And I think that those are those are really the big concerns that are going on in the community. And there's a lot of really good feedback on these these discussions. We've got a post that's really enlightening around how the coronavirus will impact real estate that has 600 posts over the last 12 days. And it's kind of interesting to see the rapid evolution of thought in the community around, ah, this is going to be no big deal to, okay, this is here and it's going to have major impacts. How do we prepare for that? Well, and that brings up a good point is like, you know, this is a rapidly evolving thing. And so even like, I mean, we should make the disclaimer right now. This show right now, if you're listening to this two weeks after, I mean, we're recording this, what, on uh, March, what is today? I don't even know. The 18th. Eight, eight, yeah, okay, the 18th, 18th, you said? Yep, 18th. Yeah, I don't even know the date anymore. Uh, March 18th, a week from now, two weeks from now, like a lot of what we're saying here might be changing. So I actually would encourage people to, to go, and this is not a, like a selfish thing, like we don't, like go to the bigger pockets forums because that's going to be up to date. People are engaging every single minute of the day on there. And so get involved in that discussion as well as listening to podcasts and stuff. But for up to date stuff, make sure you guys are checking out that. Cause like, again, this stuff might be outdated. I mean, like just five minutes before starting the recording of this, we get this news article, Josh Dorkin sent it to me and it said that Donald Trump's having HUD shut down all foreclosures and evictions during the, for the next month. And it's like, well, what does that, we don't even know what it means. Like we were just talking about, should we even talk about it on the show? Cause like they haven't even defined what that means. Does that mean only HUD foreclosures? I mean, everything. So it goes back to David's point of like, we don't know what cards are coming, uh, but we can play them. However, I don't mean that, you know, we're going to, you know, you know, profit off of this collapse necessarily. Uh, though I'm sure there are ways that we can invest and we'll get to that, but just yeah, and careful. And on that point with the cards, right? We can control our cards, 
right? We, we've had that power over the past 10 years to control the position that we're entering today with, right? Jay, you've written a book on recession-proof real estate investing. My, my like kind of, I would say, passion in life as, you know, career, and my career is helping people build a strong financial foundation. Yeah. You know, if you have reserves, if you have invested for cash flow, if you have diversified, if you have built a strong financial foundation, you spend much less than you earn, all things I'm sure we're going to talk about, you know, there, there are a lot of options for you to work through these things, right? For example, with the eviction front, right? If I've got a great tenant who loses their job as one of that 20% unemployment rate, you know, I got, uh, you know, if I, if I'm not well capitalized, my only option is to evict as soon as possible, which is terrible business and terrible, you know, there, there's, there's a moral consequence there as well, I think in some capacities versus a well capitalized investor with reserves understands that this is all relative and how do I play this hand appropriately and work appropriately with tenants in certain situations and those types of things. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So let's talk about this real quick. So we at Bigger Pockets, like you said, Scott, we are pretty big on having reserves, you know, being careful about what we're doing. Now we're seeing it like you, you've gotten a little bit of feedback from, you know, I think it was like one person was saying, well, this is why the burst strategy is just a terrible idea. And, and this is why like you shouldn't do no money down deals because it just, it, this is the, we're in this position because of that. So Scott, can I ask you first, like, is that an accurate criticism or is this why we've been talking about that stuff? Yeah. Well, first of all, I think that the beauty of bigger pockets is that you can absorb the perspective of a lot of people uh, and learn about what works and what people are doing and kind of make the decisions you want for yourselves, right? But as as a whole, the folks that represent bigger pockets officially, the, the, the four of us co-hosts on other podcasts, the rookie show, those kinds of things, I believe we we are very conservative, right? I I my I have harped for years. If you're going to buy real estate, make sure your cash you, you, you're investing for cash flow, yep. right? And long-term appreciation. Make sure that you are bringing your down payment. That down payment, by the way, can be zero percent, three and a half percent. I'll talk about that in a second here. You know, but you can bring a low down payment. But make sure you bring your down payment, your, your any closing costs, any rehab costs that you need, and have ten to fifteen thousand dollars in reserves in addition to any credit lines that you might have. Right, and so you know, run the numbers. You you built our calculators and have harped on that for a long time. And then Josh, our founder, has been harping about a, a, a bubble and recession since two thousand thirteen. <laughs> uh, we, we love Josh, right? Yes. Uh, you know, so so I, I think we, there's a, a lot of conservatism in the community, and I think that our community as a whole is going to be largely reasonably well capitalized and prepared. With a couple of people who may not have those things, and if you don't have those things, and you're listening to this show, time to stock up and build up that reserve and shore up your financial position. You may still have um, some time here. Um, so I'm not sure if that's if that's yeah. answering your question. No, I think it is, and I think to go to the 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 equity thing. And we, we talk a lot about like the 0% down. Like I'm like often known as like the no money down guy because I wrote a book called the book on investing in real estate with no and low money down. But the point I have always made in there is the same one David makes in the Burr book uh, is if, if let's say there's a hundred thousand dollar house and you go and put a $30,000 down payment on that house. Now you have a mortgage for $70,000. It's worth a hundred. You have, you have $70,000 on it. Uh, the beauty of like the no money stuff is get that deal for 70,000 all in with no money down. I would never say go buy that hundred thousand dollar house for a hundred grand, no money down necessarily. Like I'm not saying like go and over leverage like we did back in 08. The idea with creative investment or creative strategy is to get a better deal so that you have the equity. So the economy could drop 20 or 30%. Now, if it drops 50%, sure, sure, we may be under, but none of us really expected that. But if you're well, if you have good cash flow, 
if you have good reserves, like we can weather that. And if you're just a good business owner, like make good business decisions, we can get through that. Yeah, well, well, I'll chime in there. You know, this is not, no, no one has been saying this entire time, right? I, I can't emphasize this point enough. It's not smart to buy the $100,000 house with no money down or if you don't have any money, yes, right? Agreed. And you have bad credit, yep. right? It can be a very reasonable thing to do. If, hey, I've got 30 grand. Instead of putting 30% down, I'm going to keep that 30 grand in cash and put no money down to finance the property. Now I've got a very cons- a much more conservative position yeah. than if I'd put the 30 into the property and kept no reserves back. If it, it, assuming it cash flows at that point cuz then you're not you're not paying money every single month out of pocket just to survive on a property, right? Absolutely. So and then, and this brings us to house hacking, right? Yeah. So house hacking, some people talk about this as a risky strategy. Right. And what I want to point out though is who's going to lose in a recessionary environment? Your first person to lose is going to be the tenant who can't make rent. The second person is going to be the homeowner who loses their job and can't make their mortgage payment. Your house hacker, right, is buying a house and is in relatively the same position as the homeowner, but has the potential for that income to offset that rent. So going into a recessionary environment, I think that house hacking is still one of the most conservative ways to go about your living situation financially. Right, and so I think there's a lot of a, a lot of concerns out there about oh, is that risky? Well, everything everything has some form of risk. Which is the least risky way to go about these things in going into a recessionary environment? I think those are those are the questions that we've got to ask and answer. That makes sense. And by the way, guys, we're going to get into it in a few minutes here. We're going to actually get real, like actual calls from real estate investors who are who are listeners of the show and Bigger Pockets members. We're going to bring that in a little bit and we're going to go very specific on like, what should I do in this case? And we're all going to chime in. I want you guys to know that that is coming, but first we want to get a little bit more of a, of a, of a bigger picture here. Uh, so before we jump into the, the specifics on how real estate investors should handle this stuff, a couple quick questions. First of all, Jay, I want to touch on the, the, the recent changes to the Federal Reserve. So they just announced a couple big things recently, like quantitative easing and all these big words that I don't even know what half of them mean, uh, but I know you do. So what's been going on with the Federal Reserve, the government, what are the, what have they been doing and what do you see coming uh, over the next uh, week? Yeah, it's funny. I've been having this conversation with people for a couple of years now and Previously, it's always been, hey, here's some good information so you can sound really smart at a cocktail party. <laughs> uh, but these, day, these days, it actually matters. So stepping back, basically, and, and this is just kind of big picture stuff, essentially, the government has three ways that they can kind of help the economy when the economy is, is faltering and actually can also slow down the economy when the economy is doing too well, which actually happens sometimes. But the number one way is, or the first way, not necessarily the number one way, but the, the first way is that we have this kind of what we refer to as the central bank. You probably heard them called the Federal Reserve. Most countries, most big countries have this, but they can play with our interest rates. And everybody's heard kind of the last couple of days, last couple of weeks, actually last couple of years, that our interest rates have been going down again. We got up to like three and some percent uh, last year. And now we're, as of last week, as of I think Sunday night, interest rates, what we refer to as the federal funds rate. And this is kind of like the rate that banks can lend to each other and the government lends to banks is the lowest rate, is essentially zero now. So money is kind of flowing back and forth between the banks and between the government at 0% interest rate. This is good in some respects. The reason that that it playing with interest rates can impact the economy is that it allows the Federal Reserve and the government to kind of incentivize people to do one of two things. It incentivizes people to save or it incentivizes people to spend. When interest rates go up, what do we do? 
We throw our money in a savings account because we're getting decent money from a savings account. We don't spend the money. Secondly, when interest rates go up, it gets more costly to borrow money to buy a car or to buy a house or to pay on credit cards. So we don't spend. So moving interest rates up basically encourages people not to spend, but to save instead. When we lower interest rates down, it does just the opposite. We don't want to put money in a savings account anymore because we're not getting any interest. So low interest rates, we're going to spend that money because we have no incentive to save it. Secondly, we can get mortgages for 3%. We can get car loans at 5%. We can get cheap credit. So low interest rates, that encourages us to go out and start spending money. That's good for the economy. So the first thing we do, or the first thing the federal government does when it wants to spur the economy on is lower interest rates. Well, interest rates are now at 0%, and we could go to negative rates, and that's a whole separate discussion that we'll have on a different podcast. But right now, rates are about as low as they can reasonably go without doing weird stuff. Now, some people would say that's a really good thing, and in general, it would be. But it's weird to be lowering interest rates to zero now. A lot of people are, are concerned that the government did this because they were worried about doing too little too late. Ray Dalio, again, uh, an economist that I highly respect, has recently come out and said that lowering interest rates now has kind of been the opposite. It's kind of done too much too soon because consumers really don't have the opportunity to spend right now. Brandon, you can't really go out and buy a car because most of the car dealerships near, near you are closed. Yeah. David, your, your, your homeowners, your buyers probably can't go out and buy because they're having trouble like actually getting to the closing table because more uh, title companies are shut down. So even if we wanted to take advantage of these low interest rates right now, people don't have the opportunity to spend. So we could talk about whether 0% interest rates are good or bad, but the first kind of lever that the that the government has to impact the economy is interest rates. And we've kind of exhausted that, that lever now at 0%. The second one is what we, it's basically the money supply. It's how much money is floating around out there in the economy. And the the benefit of this is when there's more money floating around in the economy, there's more money that we have to spend. Businesses have to spend. Consumers have to spend. So a larger money supply stimulates the economy. And there's this thing I think David might have mentioned, uh, or no, you mentioned uh, quantitative easing. And we've heard that term a lot since 2008. We did a lot of that in 2008. And that's basically the Federal Reserve saying, we need to stimulate the economy. We're going to do that by flooding the market with money. Uh, we often refer to that as printing money. But essentially, the Federal Reserve says, we're going to put a whole bunch of money in the hands of these big banks, which will then encourage the big banks to make loans to businesses, to consumers, to really large industries. So by, by putting money out there, quantitative easing is that, that printing of money and putting money out there. By doing that, we're encouraging banks to kind of spread this money around the country uh, to give it out in terms of SBA loans, to give it out in terms of uh, mortgages, to give it out in terms of big business loans. So QE is kind of the second way that the government can put money out there and stimulate the economy. Sunday night again, uh, when we announced going to 0% interest rates, we also, or the, the, the government announced that they were going to do $700 billion in quantitative easing. In other words, they're going to put $700 billion more money out in the market for banks to kind of give loans and keep the economy going. To put things in pers into perspective, between 2009 and 2014, we put $4.5 trillion into the economy. So it's a significant percentage of that. It's what's that? That's like uh, one sixth, one seventh of what we did back in 2008. So it's, it's a decent percentage. But 
on a total scale, we could be flooding a lot more money into the market to even get to where we were in 2008, 9, 10, 11, 12 levels. So we're kind of at about 700 billion now. We'll probably see that bump up over the next couple weeks and months. Okay. Then the third piece, and so those are the two levers that that the Federal Reserve has, interest rates and money supply. The third is one that is more the government's control. This is stuff that often has to go through Congress. We have to pass legislation to do this. But this is the more direct stimulus stuff. So this is um, – people have probably heard recently uh, the government talking about bailing out airlines, bailing out Boeing, um, potentially giving $50 billion to Boeing over the next couple of weeks to keep them solvent and keep them from going out of business. But this also involves potentially giving bailouts and direct stimulus to consumers. So yesterday, um, the president announced that they're thinking about giving $1,000 to every every American, or maybe it's every adult, I don't know the details, um, to basically allow them to continue to make their mortgage payments, to buy food, to live their lives. And so this is a level of direct stimulus that, as far as I know, we've never seen in this country. I'm not even sure what the mechanisms are to do that. Do they yeah. mail a check? Do they stick it in your bank account? Do they send you a prepaid visa? I don't know. And these are the kinds of things that that the government is so concerned these days that we need to keep things going that they're starting to think about, not necessarily for the first time, they probably thought about it in 2008, but it may be the first time that we actually see the government handing money directly to consumers to allow them to continue to make their payments and to continue to survive until we get to the other side of this. So that's kind of the third piece that the government has to work with, the bailouts, the direct stimulus. And again, interest rates, we're probably past that. We're not. There's not much more we can do there. Money supply, I suspect that we're going to see a ton more money flooding into the, the money supply over the next couple of months. You're going to hear that term, quantitative easing, a whole lot again. And we're going to start to see a lot more bailouts and stimulus aimed towards both big businesses, small businesses, and probably directly to us as consumers as well. Yeah. Well, uh, the thousand dollar, I was just hoping that they would just load up all the thousand dollar bills in a plane and just fly over the country <laughs> and just let it go. That's, that's what I would do if I were the government. That always works. Yeah. Wouldn't that be fun? It was just grabbing money. It's like one of those machines. Yeah, a lot more Midwest uh, investors moving to the Midwest. <laughs> so the, fu- the funny thing is they often refer to it as helicopter money for oh, that really? very reason. Yeah, that's funny. Yeah. yeah like I'll, when we drop aid into other countries. Yeah, exactly. Yep. <laughs> I, I envision, you know, those like machines where like, you go inside this like tube, this glass tube, and they like throw a bunch of money in there and then the fans come on. And you got to try to grab the money in the air. That's that's about like yeah. how I'd envision that going. So can I speak to the fears of what's going on in most people with just this, I don't know what's going to happen. Please. Okay. In, in one of the last episodes that Brandon and I just put out, we talked about the zoom factor that when you zoom in on any situation, any deal, any problem, and all you see is the problem your emotions are like, ah, this is scary. But when you zoom out and you look at that same situation from 30 years, you don't even remember that you had an issue during escrow. The stuff that caused so much emotional turmoil disappears when you zoom out. And we are in a zoom in phase. Everybody is rapidly consuming as much information as they can possibly get and focusing on it and then panicking. And what Jay's talking about gives us a really good opportunity to zoom out a little bit and recognize this is a pattern. In my short time on earth at 37 years, I have seen this happen. I remember George Bush did something very similar to this where it was like a tax incentive where they pushed money out and said at your taxes, you're going to get a bunch more money coming to go spend in the economy. I remember President Obama did this when we had the whole, if you buy a house, you get like a credit back of like 7,500 bucks if you bought a house during this time. I don't remember. We had some fancy name for that. This is normal stuff. Whenever people start to freak out, 
The government recognizes the negative impact on market psychology and they do something like this that's very basically ceremonial. Like this $1,000 a month they're giving everyone is not going to change everything, but it will make you feel better. And that's what they're trying to do. They're trying to stop a panic. What will affect everything is what Jay's talking about with quantitative easing, okay? This was a huge and not often talked about impact on our economy in general that we went through during the too big to fail phase, okay? The government did not want to have to go. It's the equivalent of printing money. They're not actually doing it. What they're doing is pushing like paper money or uh, electronic money into the economy by buying bad debt that never should have been bought. But it has the same effect as printing money. I watch real estate prices almost double from the point where they did that to where they are now. And we all rode this in crazy, awesome wave of watching real estate go up, 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 up. And we just thought this is the way it's always supposed to go. But that was not normal. That happened because we put so much money into the economy, it had to find somewhere to go. A lot of people bought apartment complexes because raising money was really easy. A lot of people invested in, in like angel investors and venture capitalists were able to raise a lot of money because it was all over the place and go put it into companies. It really did help prop our economy, but it comes with a price, right? Inflation eats into a lot of this and it gives you this false sense of security because you've got extra money that's very easy to get your hands on. At the same time, Jay talked about interest rates. They kept them really low. So now there's no reason to keep your money in the bank. So you need to go lend it to someone to get some kind of yield. And there's tons of money to be lending, raising money. This is why Brandon and I talk about this is like the best time ever to raise money because it's everywhere. It's not hard. Well, when there's a lot of capital, it needs to find a home and where there's more demand than there is supply. Like with real estate, we saw prices rise. This is a big reason why real estate's done super good. Okay. And the reason I'm pointing this out is we're about to go do it again. Okay. It's <laughs> as a cop, we would see people that would be on like a methamphetamine vendor and they would go for seven days without sleeping. There was just a ton of energy and they would just stay up all night taking apart lawnmowers and, and riding their bikes all over the place and going on runs in the middle of the night because they've got to burn off all this energy. And then at the end of that, they'd crash and they would sleep for three days. Well, we're getting to a point where, oh my gosh, there might be a crash happening and we're putting more energy into the economy. I'm expecting that when this entire temporary scare kind of passes over, you're going to have another big wave of stuff becoming more expensive because of quantitative easing. And for anyone who doesn't quite buy into what I'm saying, what I would, what I would recommend you do is you Google US money supply. And you just look at a graph of at what point when the dollar was tied to gold, how many dollars were floating around. And then what was it, Jay, like 78 or so where they got rid of the gold standard? Yeah, officially early 70s, yeah. Oh, no, yeah, it it was late 70s. You're right. Late 70s. So they said, okay, now the dollar's not tied to gold at all. The government can print as much as they want. It's backed by the faith and credit of the US government, not by gold. And how quickly we started printing more money. And then in 2010, when they started quantitative easing, that charge, it just spikes like almost completely vertical that's going to lead to prices going up. Okay. So for the people that are really worried, what if this, what if that? It's hard for me to see this turning into something that could throw us into a depression when we're actually, we're probably creating the opposite problem. We're putting a lot of money into the economy. It's going to make things seem like they're more valued than they really are. Jay, do you have any objections with the way that I'm interpreting it? No, no, no. I 100% agree. I think that, and um, I know I'm probably going to be a little bit more pessimistic than a lot of people here, but I think that in this particular case, we're going to have to see the government literally flood the market with quantitative easing. I think it's going to make 2008 look like kind of just a trickle of cash into the money supply. Now, don't get me wrong. I don't necessarily think that's a bad thing. 
I think that we're going to see such a a cliff that we're falling off in terms of GDP, in terms of unemployment, in terms of just money not flowing around the, the country over the next couple months because everything's shut down, that it's really going to require, and I hope the government does this because I really think it's going to be necessary. I hope the government floods the market with a ton of money. The nice thing is we, we often talk about the, the, the gut reaction there is, well, if you do that, you're going to cause inflation. More money means people have more money to spend. More money to spend means more demand. And then businesses start to raise their prices because there's so much demand. The nice thing is during a recession, you can have as much money as you want out there. People are still scared to spend their money. So you're not going to see the inflation. You start to see the inflation when things improve. When the economy starts to get better, that's when inflation becomes a concern. So the big question now is, is the government, assuming they put in $4 trillion, $5 trillion, $20 trillion, whatever that number is into the economy in, 20, in quantitative easing, are they going to be able to take it back out? before we start hitting massive inflation. And that was the issue we had under the Obama years. We put $4.5 trillion in, and we weren't really keen to try and get it out because we were scared that was going to hurt the economy. Mm-hmm. My best case scenario here is we put a ton of money in to kind of stabilize the economy, and then we start pulling it out so that we have more of a controlled downturn. I don't think we're going to avoid a downturn here. I don't think it has to be a 2008 or a 1929 type downturn. But I think we're going to have some type of downturn. And I think the, uh, the, the government's going to play a large determining factor in how bad and controlled that is. And don't assume that that's terrible. Anytime there's a downturn, that's unacceptable, right? Like there's times where you need a small forest fire, like a controlled one to keep a rampant one from, from coming over. Scott, I'm curious, what's, you kind of study macroeconomic economics. What are your thoughts on what's going on and how this might affect BP? I think I think that Jay and you kind of have really good opinions on the on the economy there, and I don't like to offer opinions on the economy. I, I don't think it's not relevant to me. It's not a part of my strategy. I invest for the very very long term in appreciating and cash flowing assets, and I capitalize my business such that I will never have to sell, never have to commit more capital to the business, and can weather any storm. Right. So if the in in thirty years, right. It's just, just like you said earlier, David, I'm going to zoom out and I'm going to say, is Denver real estate going to be worth more than it is today? Are rents going to be higher? And if I don't believe that, I shouldn't be investing. And if I do believe that, I should be investing for the very long term and capitalizing my business appropriately. Right? So what I do is I invest in real estate. I put a $15,000 reserve in my first property. I add 10000 to that reserve each time. I invest such that I can produce cash flow. My for earlier mortgages have, been, you know, have continued to remain flat even as rents have grown in giving me a natural cushion over my overall portfolio. And I'm just going to continue holding and dollar cost averaging like I have for the very, very long term. So I completely agree with your sentiments about the market. And I could never have predicted that a virus was going to hit that was going to force me to potentially consider the possibility of working with my tenants to, to subsidize or forgive portions of rent due to their job loss from an hourly wage. But I'm capitalized for exactly that purpose without having to predict it specifically. And so I think that's the big takeaway for me is, hey, we know this is going to happen. We're all, none of us, none of us who are listening are investing for five years, planning to sell, build up a pile of cash and move on from this business. We're all planning to invest probably for life in this business or other asset classes. And how do you capitalize your portfolio appropriately? So I think those are the, those are the, that's kind of how I'm, I'm viewing the situation here. And I think it all comes back to good and sound investing habits, a strong financial foundation, and a very long-term outlook. 
Yeah. And, and just to add to that, I kind of look at it as investing in long-term cash flowing assets like real estate is the same as making a bet on capitalism. Mm-hmm. It's making a bet on the long-term viability of our country and our economic system uh, of, of capitalism. Yeah. Basically, if capitalism survives, if our country survives, for as long as capitalism in our country survives, cash-flowing real estate is going to go up. Same with the stock market. A, a bet with an inflation hedge. A bet with an inflation hedge. Exactly. Can you yeah explain what that means, inflation hedge, if you would? Yeah. So real estate tends to be a good hedge against general inflation. Basically, this country in general sees prices of things go up year after year after year. We often talk about it going up 2% or 3%. So if you take a dollar and you stick it in a savings account uh, next year because everything is 2 or 3% more expensive, that dollar is going to be worth less than it is today because it can buy 2 or 3% less. Keep that in the savings account over five years or 10 years or 50 years, that dollar may only be able to buy you the equivalent of in today's money of two or three cents worth of stuff. So mm-hmm. that's that's what inflation does to dollars. Inflation doesn't necessarily do that to certain other asset classes. Inflation doesn't necessarily do that to real estate because real estate is very good at keeping up with inflation, at growing with inflation. So the value of your real estate is going to grow every year because the price of things going up, because the price of that that your your tenants are paying or your rent is going to go up with inflation. So it's a good way. Real estate is a good hedge against inflation. Because our mortgage payments are are, are sta- fixed. fixed, usually yep. fixed and yep. dropping, meaning not the payment dropping, but the, the balance is dropping. Right. If and it, you have flexibility to refinance when rates go lower, but yep. they can't make you refinance when they go higher. Correct. Yeah. That, See, that, yeah. That, as a landlord, if if the cost of your milk goes up 3% next year, well, it's also safe to assume that right. your tenants are going to be paying 3% more in rent. So that can that will offset your, your cost. And this goes to Scott's point is like 30 years down the road. I mean, like we, I talk a lot about the four wealth generators of real estate, right? Number one is cash flow, meaning extra money in your pocket every single month. Over time, on average, your cash flow should grow every single year. Because like David said, you can refinance into lower rates if you wanted to. Well, also rent goes up, but your mortgage payment usually stays the same. So your cash flow goes up over time appreciation or, uh, or you could say equity growth, but appreciation, like the property values tend to go up over time. Same thing we just said, as milk goes up and, and inflation goes up, real estate tends to go up, which means your mortgage payment is going down, uh, which is the third wealth generator is your loan pay down. Loans get paid down over time. So now your equity is growing there. And then the tax benefits, you own real estate, you get a bunch of tax write-offs and stuff. So really like it's hard to lose. I'm not saying it's impossible to lose, but it's hard to lose on a 30-year timeline as long as you're taking advantage of those four wealth generators. You're getting cash flow. You're in an area that appreciates. You're paying your loan down with a fixed rate mortgage, ideally, and you're taking advantage of all the loopholes the government gives us. Scott? I love it. You're absolutely right, and I completely agree with everything you said, except for if you go bankrupt in the period, your entire portfolio goes to zero. Yeah, so you just can't can't do that. Which is where, we're, which yep. is why you buy conservatively and yep. have that reserve, right? I, I just can't. It, it, it's it's the same stuff we've been talking about for a very long time. But that is part of your overall long term return. You never can be forced to sell or have to commit more capital to this at the worst moment because that's the old, that's the way you lose. Yeah. You guys want a, a good analogy for this? <laughs> of course you do. <laughs> All right. When people that are just purely invested in the stock market 
Like imagine building wealth is like climbing up a mountain. Okay. Like you can literally go to work, make a paycheck. And that's like grabbing a hold and pulling yourself up. It takes effort, but you can move upward. Then you've got winds that come from underneath you that make that climbing easier. Okay. That's like when the economy is doing really good and it's pushing you upwards. If you invested in the stock market, when the economy crashed, you fell. You just lost your grip on that mountain and boom, you plummeted and you couldn't do anything to stop that. There's nothing that you can do. And until the winds come right back up and carry you, you're kind of helpless. Why I love real estate, why even though I'm a conservative person, I invest somewhat aggressively in real estate is I have a belay that you don't have if you're investing in stock. The belay is the part of you that attaches to the mountain and then to your waist so that if you fall, it catches you. And that is my reserves. And that is my cash flow. When the my asset drops in value like the stock market does and my $200,000 house goes down to $100,000, I don't care because I still have rent coming in that catches me and allows me to weather that storm. And I control how much reserves I keep so I can survive that. Other asset classes do not have that. You're at risk when you fall. The reason real estate is different is because it's generating money. And just like Scott said, if you focus on having money in reserves, creating cash flow, those are two defensive metrics that keep you from losing wealth. It might be possible to build wealth faster with real estate if you're super good at picking stocks or invest in the next Uber or whatever, but you don't have a belay to protect you on the downside. Yeah, and then two, two additional belays that investors have, a lot of us, not everybody, but if you're in your local market, you can self-manage. Yep. Right? That's a way to that's a way to inflate your cash flow or offset some of the costs and preserve that in in temporarily if you need to. And then second, you can DIY construction, right? This is a skill yeah. that you can learn. These are So there's, there's a couple of things that you can do as well in a practical sense, or at least prepare to do uh, going into a situation if you're a typical listener owning a couple of rental properties. Yeah. I've actually said that before where like if, if rents do drop and I actually want to talk about rents potentially dropping or just not coming in at all here in a second, but if rents do drop, now, I don't want to manage my own properties. I don't like that idea. I like having property managers and people. But if if I have to, like, great. Okay, rent's dropped by a hundred bucks. All right, well, sorry, property manager. Like, I'll, I'll take that. If I needed it, if I needed the cash, I'm going to have to manage myself right now because I need it. Like, I'll do what I have to, right? Dro- rent's dropping another hundred dollars a month. All right, sorry, handyman. I guess I'm going to go pick up that book from Home Depot. So like you said, there are a couple things we could do Potentially. Now, if you're not local, if you're like David, long distance real estate or, or like Jay and, and I buying bigger stuff out of state, you know, then that's not quite as applicable. But yeah, I think that's a really good point, Scott, especially for most of our listeners who do just own a few rentals within 20 miles of themselves. It's another just protection against uh, that you don't have in the stock market. Yeah. And just to, to reinforce David's point about cash flowing real estate being a belay, um, if David were going to come to me now and say, hey, Jay, can, can I borrow $100,000 to put in the stock market? I'm going to laugh at him. Yeah. If he were to come to me and say, can I borrow $100,000 to do a flip? I'm going to laugh at him. If he comes to me and says, can I borrow $100,000 to buy the Mona Lisa? I'm going to laugh at him. If he comes to me and says, can I borrow $100,000 to put into a piece of cash flowing real estate? I'm going to say, yeah, give me the numbers. Yep. So, so I know, even as a lender, that cash flowing real estate is protection. And so, yeah, there are a lot of things in real estate, and I'm not saying everything, and we, we can talk about this. There are a lot of things in real estate that aren't going to work well right now, but cash flowing assets, cash flowing real estate are going to work well, whether you're in a recession, whether you're in an expansion or anywhere in between. Yeah, that's really good. Whenever I used to travel, I would get that creeping feeling that I locked my back door. 
How do I know my property is going to be safe while I'm away? But not anymore, thanks to Simply Safe Home Security. I'm about to go on a three-week trip to Copenhagen, but am I tripping about my trip? Nope. With award-winning security and peace of mind from Simply Safe, I don't need to worry. Simply Safe is a super amazing alarm system that I actually installed in my house myself personally in less than 30 minutes, and there's so much peace of mind knowing that there's something in place to protect my homes, my goods, and my John Mayer shrine. Simply Safe systems have high-tech sensors that detect break-ins, fires, and floods, indoor and outdoor cameras to keep watch night and day, 24/7 professional monitoring at less than $1 a day, plus Simply Safe professional monitoring agents can even help stop crime in real time by speaking to intruders through the wireless indoor camera. Hey, hey, bud, get out of here. It's like that, but it's a lot better, I imagine. And if you buy the system and you don't love it, you can get a full refund with Simply Safe's 60 day money back guarantee. Simply Safe has given me and many of our listeners real peace of mind, and I want you to have it too. Right now, get 20% off of any new Simply Safe system with fast protect monitoring at simplysafe.com/pockets. There's no safe like Simply Safe. This show is sponsored by Airbnb. Did you know that a long time ago, before I ever started my real estate business, I turned one of my first primary residences into an Airbnb? And that's the extra income that I needed from Airbnb that gave me the confidence to go out and work for myself and eventually quit my nine to five job. And now I have dozens of Airbnbs all over the country. I've even partnered up with the old David Green on a recent property in Scottsdale to take our portfolio to the next level. And of course, we host it on Airbnb. But you don't need to be a full-time real estate investor to start on Airbnb. As a matter of fact, I was self-managing 10 properties while working my 9-to-5 job, so I know anybody can do it. Think about it this way. You're looking for extra income and going on a vacation. Wouldn't it be great to rent out your space and let your property pay for itself while you're gone? I did this one time. I pitched my wife and my roommate because we were house hacking on the idea of renting out our home, and it paid for all of our expenses on a trip to Mexico City. So go and give it a try. It might just change your life just like it did mine. And I really do mean that. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Calling all property owners and operators. Are you managing a multifamily property and looking to elevate your residents' living experience? Introducing Quantum Fiber Internet, your go-to choice for speedy internet your residents will love. The process is as seamless as Quantum Fiber service. Starting at just $50 a month, your residents can enjoy fast, reliable internet that will make them love where they live even more. Connect with your local fiber representative today. Learn more at q.com slash go big. I wonder how they got that domain. That's q.com slash go big. Limited availability. Service and rate in select locations only. Taxes and fees apply. 360 Wi-Fi and other equipment lease charges, taxes, and fees are excluded from price for life offer and may be increased. Why don't we shift gears a little bit here and head into some specific questions? Because that's actually one of the first questions here uh, that I have on the list that we're going to talk through now. As we go through this, keep in mind, everybody, we're, we're going to offer our opinions on this. This is not professional you know, adve- investment advice. So uh, every situation is unique. Make sure you guys are like doing your homework, thinking this stuff through. Uh, and we do encourage you, jump into the forums, ask questions of the community, get other people's advice on this, and uh, definitely check that out. In fact, this week on the Bigger Pockets, the Real Estate Rookie Podcast with Ashley and Felipe, they actually talk to like long time investors who have been through multiple recessions. So listen to that stuff. Listen to other people, get other people's opinion. But with that, I want to jump into a few specific questions from some people who called in. All right. The first question here is from Michael from Orange County, California. Hi guys. My name is Michael. I'm from Orange County, California. And my question I have to you all is given the current state of our economy and factoring in the global impact that this virus has, 
would you purchase a buy and hold investment property now, or would you wait a little longer to see what happens to the U.S. economy and the global economy as a whole? Thanks. All right. So that's the question from Michael. Yeah. Would you buy a rental property right now or would you just wait a, a couple months to see what happens here? And I want to actually add a little bit to Michael's question and ask the three of you in not just the rental thing, but would you also do any flipping right now? Like if you're in the middle of a, like buying a flip, like for example, if you're me and you're in the middle of, you got a flip under contract, would you continue with that right now? So either flip or rental. Jay, you want to start that one? Sure. Let me start with the flip because I think that's probably what people are going to be looking at me to address. So I have several flips under in process right now, and I am not thrilled about that, but I would not pick up a flip right now. I, I like to say that, that there are a lot of strategies that work in a lot of different markets, but honestly, flipping is one strategy that doesn't work well in a market that is falling or potentially falling. And there's a lot of risk in doing flips right now. Now, I know I'm going to hurt my book sales by saying that, but that, that's the honest <laughs> truth. Actually, I'm not going to because what I'm going to say is if you're interested in flipping, now's the time to start learning about <laughs> yeah. flipping. So go go pick up the book on flipping houses and, and spend the next six months or 12 months or 18 or 24 months studying so that you're prepared when the market starts to come back. Yeah. But for anybody out there that isn't an expert on flipping, if you're looking to me for my opinion on flipping, you're probably not enough of an expert to be flipping right now. I'm not enough of an expert to be to, to take on new flips right now because I don't know where the market's going. All right. David, what do you think? Would you buy a rental right I'm now? I have a similar situation. Okay. I have a lot of clients that are trying to figure out that same question. Should we sell my house right now? Should we buy a house right now? What's going to happen? Uh, what are we doing? The way that I'm advising my clients is the same way I would do it. That's kind of how I run my team. This is what I would do. So I tell people that's what they should do. It's okay to put stuff under contract. In fact, in my specific market, this is a good opportunity. We needed this. I have like 30 buyers that we are trying to put into contract and every house is getting 20 offers. It's incredibly hard to get into contract. This is actually a good thing when the brakes go on and it gives the right people the right chance to get in and buy something that they couldn't have before. But what we're doing is we're creating our contracts with very long contingency periods and lots of ways out for the clients. So I'm talking to listing agents and saying, Hey, I want to get this appraisal done as quick as I can. But if I can't find an appraiser that's willing to leave their house and go to the appraisal, we're not going to waive our appraisal contingency. I need to have like a 60 day period where you can't keep our earnest money if we can't get the appraisal. There's always a way to structure the deal that's going to keep you safe. And that's what I'm telling people is if you're going to buy real estate right now, one, I wouldn't buy luxury real estate right now. That'd be something. I'd, and by luxury, that's different by market, right? A million dollars in San Jose is not luxury real estate. But in Sarasota, Florida, that very well could be. I'd probably avoid that market. But if, you're, if you have an opportunity to flip a property, and if it doesn't work, you could rent it out. And you know you have plenty of capital and you really like this deal. You really like this area. I'd go for it. I'd just write your contract with ways that you can back out. To like have extended escrow periods, maybe a 60-day to 90-day escrow period just in case things go wrong and you, you need more time to get the deal put together. In my area, we just created a, an addendum, basically, a, like a COVID-19 addendum that says a bunch of extra ways that buyers and sellers, if they both mutually agree to back out, they can. Even if there's no contingencies in place, the buyer can still back out if they're unable to close because of COVID-19 related reasons. So it's just, there's here you go. Here's your solution. What are you worried about? Okay, now you have a way that if, if you can't record with the county, if you cannot find an appraiser, if the lender won't work and you can't get money, that's not your fault then you don't have to worry. Yeah. Like, like I, that took like a day for that thing to get put together. There's a lot of smart people that are moving really, really quickly. And I know 
I'm kind of harping on that, but I want people to hear it. I know there's a lot of uncertainty, but most of these like, what are we going to do are not problems that are too hard for determined human beings to figure out. Yeah, it's why those things that if your first buyer isn't able to perform because an appraiser can't get into the property or the lender can't do their job or the title company isn't available, a second buyer or a third buyer or a fifth buyer isn't going to make any difference. So yep. um, hold, holding your buyer to something that that no other yep. buyer could perform is just... That's exactly what I'm telling the yeah. sellers when they're like, well, what if we don't, what if they can't do it? Well, do you think someone else is going to be able to find that appraiser that they can't? We're all in the same boat here yeah. together. Scott, what do you think? I, I think, you know, I, I invest in both stocks and real estate. Right. And what you're seeing in the stock market, this is a lot of stuff we talk about in bigger pockets money, right? Is people are, are cautious. They're not, they're not acting right now. They're waiting and seeing. Right. And so what, what should you do and what are people going to do? I think those are two points you got to discuss here. What people are actually doing is I think you're newbies, uh, people buying their first or second property, those types of situations. I think that they're pumping the brakes largely. There's a great thread on bigger pockets uh, on the forums right now, if you want to go check that out and get a diversity of opinions on that. But that seems to be the consensus among our newer investors. The folks who are more seasoned, um, you know, th- they're seeing this as an opp- opportunity to potentially get deals and under contract and terms to David's point that they weren't able to get previously on that, you know, for a long-term investor, if you, if you buy into my approach to like investing over the very, very long-term in real estate, this doesn't really change anything because I'm effectively already dollar cost averaging into real estate. So I'm going to continue my search and keep looking. I am not under contract and have not submitted offers recently. That may change in the coming weeks. If I see something that I like and that, I think makes sense. But you know, I, I think that that's the reality that's going to take place in the market. And so kind of do with that what you will. Yeah, that's good. Just to throw my, my thoughts real quick. Yeah, I'm with you guys. Like I would not, especially like you said, Scott, like I, I would not be opposed to buying on the way necessarily the way down, like kind of dollar cost averaging my investment thing. As long as the cash flow is there, as long as I believed in the economy long-term here, as long as you know everything lined up, I'm a little worried about what the l- banks are going to do. I mean, I know they're getting money pumped in, but it doesn't mean they're going to lend it out necessarily. I think they will. Uh, but this also affects more on the commercial side, which I'm buying, you know, these mobile home parks, which I still think mobile home parks are a cool investment at this point. But like, what happens if the banks are like, the commercial banks are like, yeah, you know, I know we were quoting you guys at four and a half interest rate, but we're actually at nine now. Like, I, mean, I doubt, like, I doubt that's going to happen, but that's the biggest fear I have, which goes to David's point of making sure that contingencies are in place to be able to handle those things. Like I, I, I worries me. I, I don't love the idea of flipping right now. I'm in contract on a million dollar flip right now. And I'm like, and I'm going to go through with it, but I've got a lot of reserves right now. I mean, I've been stocking cash for quite a while. So like I can weather that if you were a brand new investor and you're putting your entire life savings into the down payment on a flip right now, which you nervous. should have never done in the first place. Yeah, correct. Yeah, yeah you should. Yeah, you sh- yeah, you shouldn't put your yeah. last dollar into any deal, no matter what the economy looks like, because it could drop at any point. Them. And just to address that, uh, a couple things. One, um, if you're in contract for a flip, or I'm under, I'm I'm in the middle of a few flips. Hopefully, if you've been buying flips in the recent past, knowing that that we were, I yep. mean, again, recessions happen historically every five and a half six years. So nobody should be surprised after twelve years Correct. that no, nobody expected this event, this this kind of black swan event. But nobody should be surprised that that a recession was was coming at some point in the next couple of years. Hopefully, you were buying with a plan B, yep. a plan C, a backup strategy. Hopefully that property could either make a, maybe it's a, well, you could turn a single family into like an assisted living facility, or you could rent it long-term, or you could do something else to kind of 
tide you over until the economy returns and you can sell it as a flip. Mm -hmm. Hopefully you're doing that. I also want to address the whole question of buying cash flowing assets because yes, I, I agree with Scott. Absolutely. I, well, I agree with all three of you. Always good time to buy cash flowing assets, even if you're dollar cost averaging on the way down. Um, but there's another thing to consider, and that's class of property. Historically, what we've seen is that not all residential properties act the same. Not all of them react equally to a downturn. And typically, we refer to properties by their class. There's A class, which is kind of luxury housing. There's B class, which is kind of the above average housing. There's C class, which is more worker class housing. And then you have things like manufactured and mobile home parks. Typically, what we see is the higher up in class that you go, the more rent compression we see. And what that means is in class A properties, we tend to see rents fall further than we do in class B. And in class B, we see ten, rents tend to fall further than in class C. Yep. And the reason for that is, is, is pretty much common sense. I mean, people that are paying for luxury housing, if they're losing their jobs, if their businesses aren't doing well, they're going to downgrade and they're going to go from that that nice luxury penthouse maybe down to B-class housing. People in B-class housing, they might be losing their houses or, or losing their jobs or seeing their, their, their wages cut or their hours cut. So they're moving down to class C housing. But everybody needs a place to live. And most people aren't going to go homeless. Most people aren't going to move back in with their parents. So that C-class housing tends to be pretty resilient because that's kind of the, the baseline housing. That's, that's the, the most common type of housing. So if you own C-class housing, historically during recessionary events, you've probably seen your market rents go up. You've probably seen your occupancy go up because there's more demand for your housing. So if you're looking for something to buy during a recession or leading up to a recession, my recommendation is stay away potentially from class A housing, even potentially stay away from class B housing and focus on that class C housing or like Brandon has been doing and big high fives to Brandon, focus on mobile home parks because those tend to be even more recession resistant than all the other classes of housing. Yeah, I've been preaching that. Like that's in my pitch for the last six months to investors in my fund. It's exactly that. Uh, and but that said, nobody expected quite this. And so I would actually go to the next question here because it, it's actually my response to what you just said, Scott. So uh, let's hear from Jack Repke from Charleston, South Carolina. Yeah. Hey, my name is Jack Repke. I'm in Charleston, South Carolina. My question is in regard to tenants paying rent. Um, you know, I, we are looking at a property where some tenants are in the food and bed industry, um, which obviously is taking a big hit and we have concerns around their ability to continue making rent payments. So I'm wondering, uh, what other investors are doing out there to A, mitigate that risk and B, um, work with the tenants in these tough times. All right. Thank you very much. All right. So I think that's a fantastic question from Jack, because although like, I mean, I've been the mobile home park thing, I've been loving the C-class thing I love. I don't think any of us expected that the economy would flat out like go from like, I mean, I expected rents maybe to drop a little bit in some areas, but I never thought tenants won't pay rent, period. Right. We're like rent decline is one thing. My tenants don't earn money anymore, period, is a whole different thing. So I want to address that issue of rents dropping, uh, so why don't we start, I guess, with Scott Trench. Yeah, why don't you explain, like, what are your thoughts on, on what do we do? Yeah, so I, I, think, I think that this, is, this comes back to, again, I, I, always, I always harp on the financial foundation, right? But like as a real estate investor, investing for the very long term, I'm not living hand to mouth. Right. I am not, not going to yeah. be going belly up after one or even two or three 
maybe four months yep. of any of my tenants paying rent, yep. right? And that's what the well-capitalized position. When, when you have a situation, there's two things going on. One is the law is changing. There's like mar- mm-hmm. almost like martial law or uh, absence of, of enforcement of evictions right now in certain cities, right? And that the federal government may impose something like that. Right. So what what this is is this is not an excuse for tenants who are otherwise capable to just not pay rent indefinitely and hold your property hostage. Right. Some might do that in that circumstance, and that's on them. But you you as a landlord do have a recourse in that situation downstream. You will eventually sue a tenant who's doing that for unpaid rent and create eviction. And there will be consequences to any tenants who do that. In the discussion, I think has to center around, hey, I've got an otherwise responsible tenant who is in the food and beverage industry, who's been there for a while and is now not paying rent. What do I do? Well, you work with them, I think, right? I think you say, what, what is reasonable? And how do I apply my judgment there, right? I texted my property manager this morning addressing this very issue. I said, I want you to look at, keep an eye on the tenants. And if anybody's having issues, let's discuss. And I will eat some of that cost, some of my profit there in order to maintain that. That is both the right thing to do to help certain people that are good, otherwise good people who are coming on hard times. And it's good business because it allows me to retain great tenants in the long term. They will remember that downstream. That's my opinion on this. All right, David, what do you think? And I'll go to Jay. Very similar to Scott. I just asked myself, um, well, what's in my own best interest? Does it make sense to pay for an eviction because somebody was a month or two late when they literally just couldn't work? It's not that they chose to be irresponsible. Or does it make more sense to say, okay, I'll take what they can give me, half the rent, or even if it's no rent, Mm -hmm. and a month or two goes by and I don't get rent, but I have money in reserves, I can make the payment. And then I see what we can do to catch them up once they're back. Or if worst case scenario, I just had to go two months and I didn't get that rent, but I didn't... It's not that big of a deal when you look at it from a 30-year perspective. It becomes actually a pretty simple question. Another thing to point out is the system's kind of designed to absorb a lot of this. When you miss a rent payment, foreclosure does not start on you right away. It's often like four to six months of late payments before banks are actually starting the process of saying, okay, I'm going to go foreclose on your property. So if you had no money in the bank and you were just playing this thing like by the skin of your teeth and you need that rent payment literally to make your mortgage and you miss a mortgage payment or two until the rent starts coming in, well, guess who's working overtime when this whole scare goes away and you got to go start pouring coffee somewhere or work in a side hustle, drive an Uber to bake that payment that you didn't save up money for. And then just let that be a good lesson for yourself that you shouldn't be living like Scott said, hand them out. Yeah. Yeah. And... The government may step in at some point. I mean, if the government's going to make it so that tenants don't have to pay rent, my hope is that they'll step up and somehow help with the mortgage thing as well. Because not just for landlords, but for every homeowner in America, 20% of them who may be out of work, who aren't going to be. And what's the quote? Like 40% of Americans don't have $400 in their checking account or something like that or couldn't survive one paycheck. Like we are going to see that in two weeks. Like all of us who are landlords are going to see in two weeks from now, we will have tenants who are not working at this very moment right now and will not have rent two weeks from now. So I think the most important thing, and I'll, I'll go to you as well, Jay, I think the most important thing is to have a plan. If you're shooting by the seat of your pants when a tenant calls you and says, oh, I don't have rent money. And then you're trying to decide then what to do. That's always a scary position to be in. So like my wife and I have been actually, I mean, texting back and forth all day today and yesterday and like talking obviously, but like, what is exactly our plan? Like if this happens, then this, if this, then this. So for example, we are going to, first of all, tell tenants, uh, you know, rent is still due. 
That's our first, we're going to say rent is still due. Second thing we're going to say, if they just literally can't do it, because there's some people, uh, who can you borrow it from? Uh, third, here's some government aid. We're researching right now government assistance programs in our various counties. Do some research. That is your job, landlord. Do some research. Find out what the government programs are helping your tenants if there are any. And then four, that we really, really can't. They does like, there's no government, there's no family help. You know, we've really exhausted it. Then yeah, we're going to work with our tenants and we have a plan in place for that. One thing I don't want to do with my tenants is say, hey, let's just postpone your rent for a month and you can just pay two rents next time. That never works for tenants, right? If you let, if you let a tenant get behind, they will never get caught up in that, in that way. I've never seen it happen. Um, because like I should say a low income tenant, because it's not like they're suddenly going to have more money in two months from now. So what we're going to do is structure payment plans, which I generally never do. And I've always advised against payment plans. But in this case, we're going to do that. Hey, we'll spread out your payment over a 12 month period. And so your rent goes from 600 a month to 700 a month after this is over, but you can take two months off or whatever. So that's my advice is have a plan in place for what you're going to do because it's coming. Jay, what do you think? I like Brandon's response a little better than mine. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. So, so I think you guys covered it well. I will throw in one additional thing, and I know this isn't the right time to be thrown out. I told you so's, but I have been saying to people for, for many years, and we all know this on this panel, I imagine, that this is why it's so important to have good tenants in your mm. units. This mm. is so important. This is, this is why it's so important when the times are good that we're not making exceptions for tenants that we're doing the right thing and we're keeping them accountable and we're getting, we're, we're screening them well. Because think about it right now. If you have two tenants, let's say you have two units. In one of those units, you have a tenant that has always paid on time. They've never been difficult. They've treated your property well. They've been there for a couple of years. They've been respectful. Everything is great. And they're at risk of missing a payment next month or maybe the month after, the month after, the month after. And then you have another unit where you have a tenant that has always been late on payments. They've missed payments in the past. They've treated your, your units like crap. They've treated you like crap. They've taken advantage of you. And you know there's a potential that they could miss a payment or two or three or four. Which tenant would you rather have right now? You know, with that good tenant, they're going to do everything they can to make things right, to make things whole. They're going to do a better job than any other tenant would be out there. And so you're going to be a lot more comfortable saying, okay, let's work at a payment plan or let's skip a month or let's double up next month. With a bad tenant, you don't trust that they're not going to try and take advantage of you. You don't trust that they're going to say, well, it's not my fault. I can't pay for the next six months. And now is not the right time to be going out and looking for new tenants. So this is why it's so important during good times to make sure that you're very selective about your tenants and to make sure that, that your tenants are, are the right tenants and, and being very picky. Yeah. Yep. And you're not going to be able to kick out the problem tenant unrelated to rent. Right. Right. At this point in time. Right. So that is going to be another part of the issue. Yeah. Love everything you just I said, Jay. very quickly just address the mindset of if there's anybody out there who just feels resentment, like this is... They, nobody should ever miss a rent payment. Why do they not have money saved up? A big reason that there's opportunity to build wealth in real estate is because it's other people don't understand the value of it or don't manage their finances well and they become tenants. Yeah. Now, not everyone that's a tenant is doing it because they have no choice. Some people choose it. But a big percentage of them, if they could save up $20,000 in reserves, they would just go buy a house and you wouldn't be renting to them. Like This is part of how the system works and you should be prepared for the fact that the whole reason there's a person to rent your house is because a lot of people don't live fiscally responsible yeah. lives, like, which yeah. means you've got to be double responsible. 
It's a whole argument of why, why isn't everybody out there a business owner making lots of money? Why are there people that complain about working minimum wage jobs? Yeah. But these are the people that allow other people to be able to get their, their food for inexpensively and their, their goods mm-hmm. inexpensively because they're, they're willing to work these jobs. And if everybody were a business owner, yep. it's, it, th- things wouldn't be that great. Yeah. Yep. All right. Next question from Hal Jones in San Diego. Good evening. My name is Hal Jones. I'm from San Diego. My question is this. If the economy does a quick downturn, like many of the signs and experts are predicting, what are some creative ways non-liquid investors can still hustle in that kind of economy? Right, what do you guys think? And I guess we could take that both from a how to make more money on the side or how to hustle in real estate still. You kind of take either approach there. Well, one, one thing to point out is, as is often the case, Bigger Pockets has a book for that. So for anybody that's, yeah, that's on video, watching this on video, here's a copy of Brandon's book, the book on investing in real estate with no and low money down. So just a little pitch for that book. Great book. Um, but it talks all Thanks. about, and this is really important now, it talks all about creative financing. It talks all about seller financing. And there's going to be a huge opportunity for this. For anybody out there that doesn't know what subject two is, might have heard that term, but doesn't know what it is. It's basically um, you taking over the payments for a homeowner, an investor that just wants to get rid of a property. They're happy to just give it to you for you taking over their mortgage payments with their lender. Um, certainly, there are some some details there that that are important. Um, but that whole idea of subject two was huge between 2008 and 2012. I have a feeling it'll be huge again. Another term to investigate there are what are called wraps. A wrap is very similar to a subject two, where you're kind of taking over the loan from the uh, from the lender from from the investor you're taking over their loan plus you're also wrapping another loan around it so you might pay them a few extra dollars every month so subject twos and wraps and seller financing creative financing these are all things that now is a great time to start hop on bigger pockets and, and read about those things pick up Brandon's book and read about it love it cool it, you know, it, in the short term, I think that everyone's routine is getting reset right now. Everyone's working from home. Yeah. You know, it's hard to go out and do those kinds of things. And so I would caution against adopting a routine that is going to be unhealthy or unproductive or whatever and say, how do you continue that aggressive self-education? How do you continue to stay fit in the confines of your home or, or wherever it is that you're able to go out? And just do not adopt that that lazy routine that could that, that could be tempting to, to devolve into here. Get those habits rights right away uh, going into this. And then the second thing, more, more broadly about how to take advantage of it, understand that marketplace power is going to shift in a variety of real estate-related markets, right? So you know we would shift potentially from a buyer's or a seller's market to a buyer's market in a recession. What are the implications of that, right? A lot of, you know, we're gonna, in, in terms of getting loans, we, we just talked about the book on investing with no and low money down and creative financing, subject to find ways to understand, hey, you as a borrower had all the power over the last 10 years. That is going to go away and the lenders are going to have the power. And what's going to happen there? The capital raising markets, right? You know, the, the sponsors... Brandon, you've had a lot of power over investors in the past couple of years because they have... It's so easy to raise money mm-hmm. recently. That could change. Yep. And so the power will be going shifting back into the limited partners. You're going to have to get on the phone with some of these guys and guide them through <laughs> the problems yeah. uh, and, and walk them through things going forward, right? You know, contractors, they've had all the power in the last 10 years. There, there could be a shift in that market. Property management, you know, so all of these markets are going to just have a natural shift that I think is pretty predictable in a lot of cases about, you know, if not specific to the specific degrees, just generally speaking, who's going to have the power in the relationships in these various markets and how do I 
use that as an opportunity. That's really good. Can I, can I add a tweak to that question? So let's say from a non-real estate standpoint, how does somebody earn more money in this economy if they're, if their job, if they're losing their job right now, they're in the service industry, they're in a hotel, they can't make ends meet anymore. How, how would you guys advise somebody? I'll start with David because you're really good with this question, David, generally is how do you just hustle to earn more cash to survive? Yeah, well, when you're in a situation that you've lost your ability to earn money the way you've been doing it, there's always going to be a transition period in between how you learn a new skill, get acclimated into a new environment, and then start converting that into revenue. It's not realistic to think you're going to lose a job and immediately become productive enough in a completely new thing or a semi-new thing to be earning revenue. So first off, just understand and expect my revenue generating ability is going to go down either way. So what I like to do when, when you get into a situation like that is say, well, where's a job that I would love to have or a skill that I would love to have or an opportunity with more upside than what I have right now? And if I'm going to have a learning curve where I'm not making money, at least be doing it into an industry that is going to be better for me in the long term. So in, in every market, like what Scott was just saying, there's opportunity for somebody somewhere. In buyers' markets, buyers get opportunities. It's been really tough to be a buyer for the last couple of years, especially where I live. Sellers have just been in a ridiculously strong position. That could shift. Well, what's the same thing like in the business world? If you're someone who's like, well, I'm not going to have a job. My whole, hotel, my whole hotel closed down and I'm not able to work in that anymore. Are there people who are still buying properties that you can go work for and intern for them or maybe make a little bit of money? Can you get on the phone? And start pounding out phone calls to find sellers that that or sorry owners of real estate that don't want to own it anymore. They're like, you know what? I only I only bought this thing because I needed a return for my money. It doesn't make sense anymore. I just want to get rid of it and go work for somebody else. It, it's gonna be tough to be you if that's the situation that you're in. I'm not trying to sound unsympathetic. That sucks when you lose your job. But oftentimes those are the emotional hits that force us to kind of like have those life-changing moments. You rarely ever hear about a person who did something amazing that didn't go through one of those what am I going to do now type experiences. Yeah, you know, I, I agree. I think it's going to be... I, I, I don't know the answer to it, right? But I do think that exactly what, what you guys have just said. And I, I also wonder, this idea just occurred to me, if there's an opportunity for folks to work for equity in potential deals, right? Is this a time where if you can, if you can figure out a way to cash flow your situation and you're not, you don't have a lot of liquidity, you know, is this a time where you, you know, cash is going to be very dear. Is equity going to be cheaper in some mm. or lower risk for some people? And is there an opportunity for that? I don't know that that'd be a question I'd pose, but you know, the four of us have a, a privileged Point. position here uh, where we're not having to worry about this going into the next couple of weeks. Yeah. And this might this might not be something that really answers the question of how can people stay involved making money in real estate, but for those of, uh, who are out there that are just looking to make money and 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 scrap up a few extra dollars on the Bigger Pockets Business podcast earlier this week, we had a business school professor um, who talked a lot about uh, in order for businesses to stay viable over the next several months and even into the future when even when things get better, it's going to be important for them to change their business models. So for example, restaurants getting better at um, at doing carry out or doing delivery, things like that. If you have any skills or ideas or uh, the willingness to hustle to help businesses figure out how they can stay in business, if you can help others figure out how they can continue to make money in this market, that's something that can be very valuable. Maybe you have technical skills and you can figure out how to take a business that is basically brick and mortar, people coming into an office and helping them get home offices set up, get the technology set up, get Zoom or video conferencing set up. 
Maybe you can deliver food for a restaurant that wasn't previously delivering food. I, I run a remediation company, firewater mold remediation company. We've started doing coronavirus cleanup and we're literally hiring housekeepers from hotels that are very good with the cleanup piece. They know how to do cleanup and teaching them the biohazard remediation piece. So, so we're keeping them employed. So get creative and figure out how you can go support other business owners or other people, maybe outside of real estate to help you continue to bring that cash in. Yeah. You know, one, one thing I'll, I'll add here is that, and this might sound a little bit cocky and I want to be careful how I say this, but like, I have never worried about my ability, no matter what the economy will do. I've never worried about my ability to succeed because I know that my work ethic is better than 90% of other people in the world. So you don't need to be the best in the world. Like you don't even need, like if you're in the upper half, the other 50, 50%. And I know people are going to say, well, I have a lot of things going for me, right? I'm healthy. I'm young. Uh, you know, like all those things that are good. That's true. But I have zero problem crawling under a house with spiders and fixing a plumbing leak. Zero problem with that. I will do that all day long to put food on the table. So what I would encourage people is to adapt or ask the question, am I willing to do what it takes to put food on my table for my family? If you are somebody who's struggling right now, don't get into victim mentality of, well, you know, I was working at that hotel and I lost my job. The government sucks because they're not bailing me out. But ask the question like, you know, what am I willing to do to make sure that my family makes it through this? Okay. And I know that I will, I will dig ditches. I will get dirty. I will do stuff. I'll work 20 hour work days if I have to, to make sure it gets done. If you have that attitude, no economy can take that away from you. No government can take that away from you. Nothing can take away just solid, good worth at work ethic and continually trying to improve your position. Always asking, how do I make more? How do I do this more streamlined? How do I make this more effective? And if you're that person, you're never going to have a problem. Doesn't matter what economy you find yourself in. Yeah, I just had a conversation with my real estate team about that yesterday because everyone gets worried. Mm -hmm. And what I said is the reason I'm actually not worried at all, my confidence is higher, is I know our like the real estate agent world, that just got hammered. Yeah. Like we had 26 houses in escrow and a ton of them are probably going to be having second thoughts or dropping out and, and you won't be able to stop that from people. I don't have a lot of control over it, but I'm not feeling fear because like what Brandon said, I'm like, there's no way that with my work ethic, I won't go find a situation and work in somebody else's business and do really, really good. In fact, when the economy is going well, a strong work ethic is less valuable because you can get by without one. Yeah. Lots of companies are having a hard time firing good, hiring good workers with good work ethics because there's so much money floating around. But when the economy goes bad, that's when a good work ethic is actually more valuable. When nobody else can get a job and you can, or nobody else can get a raise and you can because you're working really hard, you should feel better. And I love Brandon's point. If you're feeling, uh, okay, I work in the hotels, my hotels done, is going under, I'm screwed, there's nothing I can do and you're negative, that's an inner problem. That's a problem with your mindset, with your attitude. And this can be a positive thing if it forces you to look at that and become a better version of yourself. Very good. All right, next question. I didn't really leave anywhere for us to go with that, did I? <laughs> <laughs> Next it's question. good. It was like mic, mic drop. <laughs> All right. Next question comes from Cavell from Brooklyn, New York. Hi. Good evening. My name is Cavell, and I'm calling from Brooklyn, New York. And I was wondering, what impact do you think this pandemic is having on the ability to access capital via a line of credit or even a cash-out refi? Thanks a lot. Have a good night. Stay healthy. Bye. Jay, you want to start kick that one off? Yeah, I think this is the 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 sixty four thousand dollar question or the million dollar question, depending on how much money you need. 
We don't know. I mean, right now, the the government is implying that there's going to be lots and lots of money out there for businesses and people and everybody that needs money. So right now, I'm kind of optimistic. I mean, interest rates are low, and the president has talked about um, funding $50 billion for SBA loans. And I have to imagine real estate investors um, are going to be high up on the list of people they want to keep happy because we kind of push the economy forward pretty well. So right now I see no reason not to worry. I see no reason to worry about access to capital. That said, we we look back at 2008 and we saw that lines of credit were being shut down. Some were being called due. People that had money out that like were just, hey, you, you have to repay us right now. We don't care about your situation. Uh, it was hard for our buyers to get loans. So I would say right now, optimistic, but don't put things off thinking that they're always going to be good and access to capital is always going to be easy. So if you've been thinking about refinancing, don't say I'm waiting for another eighth of a point drop before I refinance. I mean, if an eighth of a point is going to make that, I've been telling this to people a lot. They, they're so excited that that rates are down. And I, what I'm telling people is if an eighth of a point or a quarter of a point really makes that much of a difference to whether or not it's a good deal for you, it's probably not a good deal. Mm-hmm. Um, your deal should not be that sensitive to a small drop in rates. And rates have actually been up. I mean, it's it's counterintuitive. We think of as of, as of mortgage rates as being tied directly to that federal funds rate, that 0% now interest rate. But actually, that's just one component of mortgage rates. Mortgage rates are also controlled by U.S. Treasury rates. And we don't need to go into that, but suffice it to say that Treasury rates have gone up actually over the last week or two. And it's also controlled by the banks and the lenders themselves just saying, hey, We want more money. We want higher margins. We're going to charge more. And over the last week or two, there have been so many loan applications going in that lenders have said, we can't keep up. So we're going to raise our rates. Mm -hmm. So over the last week or so, David talked about these 26 houses that he has in escrow um, that he's having trouble closing because of title companies and inspectors and appraisers. We've actually had two buyers back out because their rates have gone up over the last week and they now aren't getting the deal they thought that they were going to get. So don't wait to refi because we're not positive which direction rates are going. They're likely to go down a tiny bit more or stay stable, but we don't know. Don't hesitate and hold off on getting a HELOC or a line of credit if you want to do that because who knows, in, in a couple months, you may not be able to. Move forward now. Be optimistic, but be cautiously optimistic. Love it. Yeah, I I, I, I would just also kind of add in there, hey, again, this is the a lot of the home loans that you, our listeners, are probably being, going to be getting are Fannie Mae fixed probably 30-year mortgages, right? So they're Fannie Mae insured. And that ability to access that type of financing is probably going to dry up much at a much slower rate, I would imagine, than commercial financing or business financing and those types of things. And so that that is kind of the big advantage here. But like there's no reason, there's no reason to to wait if that is critical to your business strategy or you haven't done it. For me, hey, rates just dropped. So I'll probably refinance, not because I haven't been prepared for that, but because there's no reason not to refinance when yeah. I can just lower my payment. So it just kind of think through those things and understand, hey, if you're well capitalized and you're in a good position, there's no need to rush, rush, rush to go do it. But if you're if it's if if you haven't shored up your position, then I think that's the time to react immediately per Jay's point. Yeah, good stuff. All right. Next. Hey, Scott, hey, okay. Scott, I have a question for Scott before we go on. Sure. And, and this is something I've been thinking about a lot recently. Historically, I never, ever, 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 
ever, because I'm ultra conservative, would have recommend people getting an arm, a 7-1 or a 10-1 arm um, as a loan. But these days, what we're seeing is some pretty big spread differences. Rates for 7-1 for, for and 10-1 arms are a good bit lower than 30-year fixed. Typically, you're getting some lender credits or you're saving on points. And given that rates likely aren't going to go up any time in the near future, do you have any particular thoughts on whether anybody should even be considering arms now versus fixed rate loans? I, you know, I, and this, I use fixed rate loans. Let me just preface this with this discussion with that, right? But here's the advantage of an arm, right? If you hold on to a property for a very long period of time, right? And look, we're going into, it looks like we're going into a recession. That's why we're recording this podcast. I think that's just generally the consensus is we should be wary of that. But if you're thinking, if you're zooming out, right? If you hold on to a property for a long period of time, 10 plus years, right? You've now amortized that loan pretty significantly. And it's probably your return on equity is beginning to drop over that hold period. So it's probably time after seven to 10 years in most average market conditions to refi or sell the property after a 10-year period anyways, right? So an arm actually, I think, has a lot of advantages for a lot of investors. And I, Jay, I don't know the spread difference right now, but that is something, I, you know, now that you've mentioned it, I'm going to go consider when I look at these, when I look at these loans. Sure, you're assuming that interest rate risk over time may rise, but that may not matter in the context of a, a refinance unless rates go up a ton because you're going to have to pull out money somehow uh, at some point if you want to keep a strong return on equity over the long term. Well, I think there's also some fine print we need to think about when it comes to like the arms. Like, so I have an arm on, a, on a, actually two different investment properties. And the reason why I was okay with it is because they changed a lot of stuff back in 08 and 07 when the arms were like, you know, your payment's going to go from eight, you know, 3% to 29% overnight. Now all these people got lost their stuff, right. right? They changed a lot of stuff. So today's arms are a lot of times different. My arm that I have, and for those who don't know, it's adjustable rate mortgage. It can go up and down, it generally goes up, but it can go up and down a little. In fact, I actually just got a letter the other day from my bank saying my arm dropped, which I was awesome. Like my payment went down like $40 a month, but on one of my properties. Anyway, the thing actually says though, it could only increase by 1% per year it was one of the stipulations. I don't know if it's a federal law or that was just in my thing. It only would go 1% per year and it capped at 11%. Now that sounds like a lot, but I ran the numbers at 11% on that investment property and it changed. I mean, it was a pretty cheap mortgage. It changed the payment by $120. That property cash flow is 700 bucks a month. So worst case scenario over the next seven years, it could bump from four to 11% over the next seven years if every year was the worst increase possible. And at the end of that, I'm only $120 more in payment. Do I care? Not at and, all. And you can refinance I, that, you know, I can refinance uh, unless I your to, yeah. property decreases in value by a large amount, sure. resulting yep. in a lower LTV or whatever, but yep. in a large point. So, so I think, I think there's a lot of good reasons to use arms. And I think that the big thing, but the fact of the matter is most people will use fixed 30 year mortgages yeah. because they like the idea of locking it into a low interest rate. So how's that? And <laughs> arms hurt people for a long time. They became a dirty word. Yes. Like HELOC was a dirty word because in the last recession, a lot of people lost their properties. And what I love about this conversation is I guarantee you a large percentage of listeners just went, Oh really? Like there's a cap. Yeah. I didn't. Oh, the difference between seven and 11% for Brennan's only $120. I can manage that. 
they had no idea that that's how the thing worked, but yet they had very strong opinions about the fact that an arm is bad or a HELOC is bad. And there is so much bad information going out there from people that were just fear mongers that would say, never use an arm, don't ever do anything, don't burr, don't flip, this is terrible because people use them irresponsibly or didn't look at the fine print and ended up getting in trouble. And then you hear information like this and you say, oh wait, that actually isn't terrible at all. Scott just made a really good point. If my house is gonna go up in value, which they typically do over a seven year period, I probably need to sell it and reinvest that money anyways. What do I care if the rate could start to reset? Oh, I could just fix it at a fixed rate mortgage so that I don't have to worry about it. Okay. So the downside is not really that bad. Jay, what, hey, do, what you do you think? You, you didn't, you posed the question. I, so again, I'm tremendously conservative and, and I've, without any good data behind me, I've had this attitude for the last several years that arms are bad. Fixed rate mortgages are good. Yeah. And I just had a good friend of mine who's actually in the Bay Area, David, who questioned me on this and challenged me on this a, a couple, I guess about two weeks ago, and he forced me to actually confront the data and actually get rid of just my biases that arms are bad, fixed, lo- fixed rate loans are good. And basically the data said to me exactly what you said, Scott, as you get to seven or 10 years, build up more equity in the property. And so your return on equity, which is an important number that we can talk about at a different time, but return on equity drops. And so it's generally a good time to refinance uh, in the seven to 10 year time frame. Anyway, um, you do get some, some good benefits. A lot of times lenders will charge fewer points. So there's less money out of pocket up front. You can get lower interest rates, so there's less money out of pocket every month. There's a lot of talk that we could be in a low interest rate environment. I mean, over the last 60, 70 years, interest rates have been going down. So it's possible we could end up in a low interest rate environment for the next 5, 10, 50 years. Um, And typically, there are caps on how much rates can go up. So there are a whole lot of good reasons to be considering an arm right now. I'm not telling people... Like, don't do your own research, make your own decision based on your own situation. But I'm no longer, and this is the reason I, I'm posing this, I'm no longer in that mindset that one is necessarily always better than the other. It reminds me of when I was a kid and I was told by everybody, don't eat eggs. Eggs are terrible. They raise your cholesterol. You're going to get killed. <laughs> like, don't eat more than three eggs a week or you're going to die. And now you have well, all these ba- fitness people. That's back that are- now. As of like a month ago, like, oh God, yeah, I know it's yeah, back. I'm going to die pretty like, soon. Yep. <laughs> low fat was the thing like don't eat fats yeah. and now it's don't eat sugar and don't eat carbs and like you just get this idea like okay people said don't eat eggs eggs could kill me and then you find like professional fitness people that say oh like 80 percent of my diet is scrambled yeah. eggs with a little bit of kale when i was uh, a kid uh i asked my mom one time what that was and i pointed to that blue line that's at the top of a car windshield and it's meant to like you know be a little bit darker or like usually it's a blue but it's usually like a uh, like a darker part of the windshield, right? It keeps you from getting blinded by the sun. And she said, don't look at that. You can go blind. And I, <laughs> she thought I meant the sun. It wasn't until high school. I'm not kidding. It wasn't until high school that I, that I began looking at the top of a windshield because I thought all that time, my whole childhood, that I was not supposed to look at that, the shaded part on a windshield. And there's so many things that we hear in life, right? That that we hear and we we take as gospel truth, but it might have been a specific case or uh, or an example. So the question I've got for everybody listening right now is like, what is that shaded windshield in your life right now that you're not looking at, and maybe you should be? Mm. Question authority. Yeah, question it, mom. Jeez. <laughs> <laughs> All right, next question. Uh, let's go, Emily from Long Beach, California. Hi, um, my name is Emily, and I'm from Long Beach, California. 
super new. I haven't even made my first deal yet, but I am actively looking. I'm, I'm investing so much of my time and learning what I need to learn. I have relationships with investors who are ready to give me that other half of the deal and what's required with work and, and any leverage that, you know, they have and I have combining both. So I'm driving around, I'm looking for deals, I'm using Zillow, any free local NLS. But given the virus um, and given the way everybody is uh, now just, you know, keeping their space and not really going out in public, what do you suggest for someone as fresh as me in finding a deal, contacting owners, agents, and making that first offer? I am ready. I have created a a list of actually homes that are for sale in my area. Um, I have a script that I've kind of pulled together based off of listening to different bigger pocket podcasts, actually. Um, so I'm just wondering how you would suggest or recommend or what you would recommend for somebody that's in the early stages like I am. Thanks. All right. So I love this question from Emily because I'm dealing with the same thing. I'm teaching some wholesalers out here in Maui how to do driving for dollars and how to contact sellers. Like, should we just back off for a while at this point, do you think right now? Uh, and the same question I go to David, if you're an agent, the same thing apply. I mean, if you're a door to door salesman for meat sticks, I don't know, whatever, like the same question, should we just hold off for a while until this settles? What do you guys think? I'm a big proponent of the Warren Buffett philosophy, be greedy when others are fearful and fearful when others are greedy. Doesn't mean be foolish, okay? Don't just go buy everything just because yeah. and assume that because we're, we are in a recession, you're already in a, in a place where you get great deals. But I, I, like this is making all my long distance investing formula look, look really smart. That's literally what we're using with our clients. Yeah. Hey, David, what do you think about this house? I want to go see it, but I'm not supposed to leave. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to get the seller to make a video of the house and we're going to send it over to you and you're going to look at it and you're going to give me the questions and I'm going to ask the seller. Uh, there's very little that can't be done remotely if you're focused on it. We just held our team meeting via Skype yeah. and everybody... Had, like We just picked up a Slack channel. Like I know that's really big for you guys at BP. Like business will still move if you're determined to make it move and everybody else is going to be sitting on the sidelines. Now... That doesn't mean this works in every market, okay? In my specific market, a slowdown is a blessing right now. There's a chance to get just a person who wants to own a home, the actual chance to get it because there's not 20 other offers coming in. There's three other offers. And my clients are more prepared. They understand the options of the contract because I've talked to them. So they're looking really good. But I'm looking at this whole thing like, you know, you got to see the house at some point if you're going to live in it. I'm definitely advising them. If this is an investment property, you don't have to see it. But if it's a house you're going to live in, you probably do. That's something you want to make sure you feel comfortable with. But you don't have to see it in the next two or three weeks. What if we just write the contract to be over 60 days and when the shelter in place is lifted, then we go look at it. And we've already got your appraisal. We've already got your loan. We've already got all the paperwork done. We just get that last little box checked and boom, we move to the finish line. And this is one of those things where, oh, I didn't even realize that you could do that. This is just, I thought you were supposed to do this and then this and then this. And now you question why it's that way. And that's usually where efficiency is born. One of my favorite quotes is necessity is the mother of invention. And that's exactly what you see in times like this. Yeah. So Scott, what do you think? I mean, should we be out there hustling and, you know, working to find deals still right now? Well, I, I think for, you know, when you, what do you mean by hustling, right? You shouldn't be out 
spreading the virus, <laughs> right? That's the whole point of what we're, what we're doing here. And it's not about your health. It's about the health of the, the people that are particularly at risk in addition to your health, right? But you know, should you be buying real estate deals and those kinds of things under safe conditions? Yeah, I think, I think if you're a newbie and I haven't, you know, I haven't done my first deal yet, but I'm actively looking, you know, I, I think it's a question of assessing reality, Right. And the reality is, I think a lot of newbies are not going to actually follow through on deals in the next two or three weeks. Right. If you're one of the exceptions to those rules, know, know yourself and, you, and continue going about things. But I would say it's also fair to say, hey, I'm a newbie. I'm looking f- to get into real estate. It's uncertain right now. So I'm learning, I'm looking, I'm waiting, whatever, if that's, if that's your reality and contact people in that context. But don't mislead people if you're not going to be seriously interested in buying or you're going to be scared of the current economic situation. Now's a great time to read, learn, you know, network over Skype uh, or Zoom or whatever it is. And, and analyze a lot of real estate analyze deals. Analyze a lot of deals, yeah. yeah. It's also potentially can be a good time to continue your long-term investing strategy, but know if that's you and if you're seriously going to go through with it. How's that? Jay, do you have any thoughts on that? No, I, I think you, you guys have covered it. I mean, I think um, now is a great time to practice, Yeah. if nothing else. Um, for those people that are scared to make offers, well, this is your opportunity to kind of make offers that might be low, might be, uh, what's, what's the, the saying? If it's not insulting, it's not low enough. <laughs> yeah. Basically, this is your opportunity to kind of practice in situations where you might have a built-in out, where there's probably not going to be a lot of transaction volume anyway. So you use this as an opportunity to kind of keep moving forward if you're not an experienced investor. Use this as an opportunity to put together your plan, to kind of think through, hey, when this all passes, what am I going to do? Create that, that, um, that that, that marketing campaign, but don't deploy it yet. Uh, start writing those seller scripts or practice your negotiating. Start thinking about what your, your SKU list is going to look like for your flips. Start thinking about how to run an analysis on a rental property or a multifamily if you want to do that. This is a great time. Too many people, I think, are going to be sitting around not doing anything, and then we're going to get to the other end of this, and either things are going to get better, things are going to get worse, but there's going to start to be opportunity, and a lot of people are going to say, oh, okay, what do I do now? Well, spend the next six months deciding when that day comes, what you're going to do so that you can start executing. My wife just shut down her business. She, she basically, well, one of her businesses, she shut down her staging business. Basically, she got to the point where she either needed to make a big investment in inventory and furniture or she had to stop. And basically, that industry right now is at a standstill. People aren't they don't want furniture in their houses, especially if they've been in other houses. So she stopped. But that doesn't mean that she's just going to go and not think about it for the next six months. It's still a very viable business model. It's a business model and a business that she wants to be in. So she's going to spend the next six months figuring out where she can get the best deals, building systems and processes for the business, figuring out how she's going to market and start sowing those seeds or planting those seeds for marketing so that when six months from now, when the business becomes viable again, she's going to hit the ground running and she's going to beat everybody else that's just starting. So if you're a real estate investor, do the same thing. Use this as an opportunity to really prepare yourself and be ready for when the time comes. That's really good. And on that note, Jay, I want to talk about uh, this real quick before we get out of here. A few months ago, we're going to look like, you know, like we are psychics here. But the reality is we just know that recessions happen. Like you said earlier, whether or not we knew this black swan event was going to happen and just destroy everything, it doesn't matter. We knew that it was coming at some point because that's what happened. So we did an episode about a year ago, early 2019. It was episode 311, 311. 
where we talked about six rules to prepare for a recession. And I think those actually adequately apply to today's potentially being in a recession or one that's we believe potentially might be coming. Can we just review that real quick? And again, I want people after this episode, go listen to 311 and because it's still applicable today, in fact, more so. But what are those six rules to prepare for a recession? Yeah, just just to give a little bit of context here, uh, that episode we talked a little bit about the book that Bigger Pockets released, Recession Proof Real Estate Investing, and basically the book lays out for every piece of the economic cycle, and we break the economic cycle into four pieces. For each piece of the economic cycle, there are things that you should be doing, there are things that you shouldn't be doing, and then there are things that you should be doing to prepare for the next phase of the cycle. So back in January of 2019, I think it was when we did that episode, um, we were we were well into the expansion. We were, I was thinking, probably close to the top of the market. We'd be hitting in the recession within a couple of years. And so we talked about the things that we should be doing to prepare for the recession. And I think the six things that we talked about, number one, hoarding cash. So during a recession, having cash is really important. And we talked about the fact that in 2008, credit lines were tightened, HELOCs were called, it was tough to get loans. Right now, we don't have that problem. So that's great. So right now, we're not facing that issue. We still have the opportunity to kind of build up cash and we still have the opportunity to use credit lines. So that's something that we can still continue to work on. We can still continue to cash in investments that aren't performing well, selling off things, maybe just go on eBay and sell all the things that you don't need or don't want and and save that cash. Number two, we talked about opening up credit lines. And again, for the same reason, when we get into a recessionary period, a lot of times lending tightens up. It's harder to get credit. It's harder to, to get loans. So luckily, again, we haven't seen that yet. It's still a good time to be opening credit lines. If you have equity in your house, if you have equity in an investment property, if you have good personal or business credit, now's a great time to go open credit lines. Because if things start to get bad, you may not be able to get access to credit, but things don't won't necessarily get bad enough that they close those credit lines. So having access to that cash, even if you don't need it right now, is really important. So go open those credit lines if you can. Don't necessarily take the cash out, but have it available for when the opportunities come. Um, next, we talked about building credit. So if you have bad credit or if you're young and you have no credit, now's a great time to be building credit because lending isn't necessarily going to stop but the criteria for those getting loans is probably going to go up. Back in 2008, I remember before the crisis, we were seeing FHA loans. I think you could get at like 640 or 620. I mean, credit scores at pretty low credit scores. By 2009, 10, 11, I think you need like a 720 credit score to be able to get those FHA loans. So your, your credit worthiness is going to need to be better if you really want to take advantage of lending in a recessionary period. So go out and build credit. Go if you don't if you're young and you don't have a credit card, go get a credit card or two. Go buy some things on that credit card. Pay it off every month. But using your credit and paying it off every month is the best way to build credit. Don't wait to do that. Number four, we talked about getting rid of properties that can't sustain a worst case hit. So if you have flips that that you really you don't have a backup plan for them. Try and sell them now. Even if you have to sell them for less profit or even a small loss, don't chase the market down. Cut your losses. If you have rental properties that aren't cash flowing well and you're thinking, yeah, I was probably going to sell those in a year or two. Well, maybe now's a good time to be selling those or thinking about selling those. If you have other assets that, that you're thinking about getting rid of because you're not comfortable holding them three or five or 10 years, now's a better time than getting a year in and saying, I really wish I would have sold that a year ago. Um, for anybody that has short-term debt, if you have debt that's going to 
um, come due in a year or two years or even three years, now's a really good time to restructure that debt for a couple of reasons. One, we talked about interest rates being really low. If you got debt any time prior to the last month or two, you can probably restructure that debt for, for, for less. I'm not saying you should refinance just something that you bought six months ago, but if you have anything that's going to come due in the near future, you would prefer to be in a situation where you don't have to worry about a loan coming due during a recession because during a recession, you may not be able to refinance. So, so restructure that debt. Now, if you have private debt, if you have lenders, private lenders, go talk to them and say, hey, if we get to the point where this loan is due, will we be able to renegotiate? Can we restructure now or can we put in, pl- uh, put in place a plan to restructure when that comes along? So be prepared. And then finally, and I mentioned this uh, a little bit just a second ago, but cut your losses. The biggest mistake that I saw a lot of investors make during 2008 was they chased the market down. Mm. They said, oh, I'm not getting the profit that I that I was expecting two months ago, so I'm going to hold out for that perfect buyer. I'm going to hold out for that profit. And then the market drops a couple percent, and they say, oh, market dropped a couple percent. Okay, I'll, I'll drop my price a little bit, but I'm still not ready to like sell at a fire sale. And they they keep, they keep drop with the market instead of getting ahead of I the market. I did that. I went from, I went from a 170 sale price on a flip and just every week would drop it by a few thousand. And I chased it for nine months, 10 months, something like that. So I sold it at like 110 or something. It was. Yeah, I, I talk about the fact I used to work for eBay and I remember when eBay wanted to buy PayPal back in the early 2000s and and they made an offer of like uh, $500 million and PayPal said, nope, we want $800 million. And eBay was like, nope, not interested. And so a couple months later, like, oh, they're doing well. Okay, we'll, we'll give you your $800 million. Nope, we want $1.2 billion. Yeah. <laughs> nope, not interested. We want $1.5 billion. Uh-uh. And they chased it up and eventually eBay ended up paying over $2 billion for <laughs> PayPal because they they refused to get ahead. They kept trying to play catch. Up. Don't do that with your with your real estate. If 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 you need to sell, get ahead of it. Even if you have to take a small loss, better to take a small loss now than a big loss later. So just that that's my those are my six tips. Again, um, yeah. let's see. Hoard cash. Um, open up credit lines now while you still can. Build your credit now because you're going to need it pretty soon um, or potentially need it pretty soon. Get rid of any properties that can't sustain a worst case hit by the market, restructure any short-term debt, any debt that's coming due in the next year or two or three. And if you see the market starting to fall, cut your losses, get ahead of it and, and just lick your wounds and, and move on. And I, I actually have a number seven I want to add to that is, is and this is totally self-interest of BP, pick up a copy, well, I shouldn't say total because it should help you as well. Pick up a copy of Recession Proof Real Estate Investing that Jay Scott wrote because uh, this is just a sample of what's inside that book. Uh, and with a recession coming, we should be looking into that. So, all right, guys, well, we got to wrap this thing up here. So kind of some closing thoughts here. I'm wondering, can you guys offer just one piece of advice from each one of you on the next steps we should be taking? Like what, what should we do next? Sure. I'll, I'll start right. my, my, my one tip, which encompasses a few things is just continue your long-term work on your financial foundation, right? The goal that we're all trying to work towards uh, in one way or another is financial freedom and the ability for our portfolios to generate enough wealth to replace the dependence on other types of income, right? So continue to spend less than you earn, track your spending, build up a, a, a cash reserve, both for your real estate business and your personal life, and invest for the long-term from a position of financial strength. All right, Jay? Um, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take a page from David's book and give a little analogy. Um, Mm. Any of you guys uh, ever drink alcohol? 
couple of you maybe. I'm not a sinner. Thank you very much. Okay. Jay you're Scott. not a sinner. Okay. Well, <laughs> I, then I'll assume David and Scott are. Um, anybody out there that's ever drank too much. I remember my college days. There were a couple of nights that I drank too much. And I remember stumbling home and climbing into bed and the room spinning and I'm feeling nauseous. I'm feeling horrible. Sure. And I say to myself, I will never, ever, ever do this again. Mm. And the next morning I wake up and I still got that visceral feeling of being hungover. And I'm like, yeah, I'm never going to do this again. A couple of days later, I'm probably, the memory's kind of fading. And a few weeks later, I'm just like, oh, time to go out and drink again because I've forgotten what that visceral feeling was. I've, I've kind of lost it. You can't maintain that, that feeling, that feeling of pain long-term. I do and that when I, I go to a buf- when I go to a buffet. I'll never go that, to a buffet uh, again. Mm. Yes, unfortunately, I can Six make that Six hours later, every I'm day. back yeah, at a buffet. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. I see a lot of people who are doing the same thing with real estate investing in 2008. I remember getting out of 2008 and a lot of us like talking, licking our wounds and saying, wow, that was rough and we made a lot of mistakes. I'm never going to make that mistake again. I'm going to keep perspective on what can happen and how bad things can be. And here we are 10 years later, and I, I fall victim to this myself. We're forgetting how bad things can be. And we're forgetting that that things can be a lot different. I talk to a lot of people. This is interesting. I talk to a lot of people who didn't live through 2008. And we talk about like this impending downturn. And what I realize is there are a lot of people who, when they imagine it in their mind, it's exactly like today. And when I say today, a couple months ago, when everything was great, they're happy, they're they're business is going well, their investing is going well, everything's good. And they imagine a downturn, a massive downturn is exactly like that except that real estate's half price. Mm-hmm. And, and they don't get that during a downturn, there's, it's, it's not just real estate prices that are going down. Everything feels different. Everything feels bad. And so I guess this kind of leads me to, to my actual tip, which is things are never as bad as they seem when you're in the middle of them. And things are never as good as they seem when everything seems great. So if things are going mm-hmm. well, Plan for when things aren't well. When things are going poorly, keep in mind the perspective that things are going to get better. Don't ever assume that your situation, it's too easy to fall into a situation, forget about the past and think whatever's going on today is going to last forever. It's never going to last forever. It's never as bad as it seems. It's never as good as it seems. Mm, Good stuff. David Green, what do you think? That really, that echoes my point earlier that you need to zoom out. When you feel emotions are up and down, we were just talking about this. Like with every piece of news, it's, oh, it's not that bad. Oh, wait, it's worse than I thought. Oh, wait, it couldn't be that bad. Did you hear this? Your emotions are all over the place and it's not a healthy way to live. If you zoom out, you will then get clarity on the best move for you to make. You should be assuming that recessions will come. For a lot of people, this is a very good scare if it isn't a bad problem where they realize I didn't have enough money in reserves. I was depending on zero economic vacancy. I mean, there's a lot of multifamily investors that are putting a lot of money into deals, assuming they just won't have vacancy because you haven't had it for eight to 10 years now. Like every, rents have gone up every single year and then they build their model based on that. And that is not realistic. You have to expect things to go wrong. We've had a, a wonderful rising tide. You shouldn't expect it to continue. So, so zoom out. Think about worst case scenarios and prepare for them, but don't plan on it always being a worst case scenario. And don't use that as an excuse to not take action. But I think Scott's given really good advice. If you just continue to get the fundamentals right, you're still going to build wealth through real estate. And then the last thing is when you're trying to figure out what is going to happen with our economy, because who knows when this airs, what's changed since when we were talking, you can't know. But what you can do is ask yourself just wise, prudent, pragmatic questions. 
if you were the coach of an NBA basketball team and you had a player who was doing really, really well, and then for two or three games in a row, they started to perform very poorly. You wouldn't be freaking out saying, should I pull him? Should I, should I keep playing him? I don't know what to do. You would start to ask yourself, why did their performance change? Is this a person who just aged out? Their, their athletic ability is decreasing. Are they suffering from an injury that they're not going to come back from? Did they lose interest in playing the game? And I need to like substitute a new player for this person or trade or, or waive this person? Or are they somebody who didn't get enough sleep last night because they partied too hard and they drank too much, like what Jay was saying, and they're not focused? Are they fighting with their boyfriend or their girlfriend? And so they're not focused on what they're doing. And that's a temporary thing that will pass. I'm asking myself the same thing about the economy. Are the fundamentals of our economy in the United States right now terrible to where we're not going to recover from this? Are jobs being lost? Like, remember the, the dot com bust that we had in the 90s, where all of a sudden, like, everybody, like, they, they were working, making websites, and then nobody needed a website anymore. That really affected the economy. There was jobs that were, there, people did not have to go back to. Or is this a temporary thing where people are not going to be able to go to work? They're going to stay home. We're going to have a decrease in performance, but those jobs will be there when they want to come back. Ask yourself questions like that when you're trying to figure out what move should I make? What is causing this problem? Is this a temporary problem? Is this a permanent problem? And uh, give yourself something to think about from that perspective. Don't just respond to every new piece of news and let yourself get jerked from one side to the other side and live in chaos like that. Zoom out, look at the big picture. And for most people, that really helps bring clarity on the right move that they should be making. Good stuff. All right, my final so, word so, for the day. So, Brandon, which, what, what, no, ahead. no, we, we, need, we need to get your tip. What's okay. your tip? All right, my tip. Hey, you're not yeah. sneaking out of this one. <laughs> my final tip is what I'll just reiterate what I said earlier. The economy cannot change your work ethic. The economy doesn't change what time you wake up in the morning. doesn't change whether you go to the gym or not, or you will work out or not. could change whether you're going to the gym. doesn't change whether you work out or not. It doesn't change whether or not you make those phone calls. It doesn't change any of that. So, regardless, like we are playing a game of poker. Like we said earlier, there are cards being dealt right now and every card changes the, the, what we can play with our hand. If you're thinking, you know, a good game of poker, right? Like you have a few cards in your hand and then as cards get dropped one at a time on the table, that affects your game. So, but it doesn't like, it doesn't affect what we do uh, in terms of our lead measures and what we as people do. So just remember that and you'll be fine. That's all I got. All right, guys. Well, let's get out of here. I hope you guys enjoyed today's show. I hope you learned a lot. I hope you feel a little bit more good and secure about what you can do going forward. Jay and Scott, thank you guys for joining us today. Uh, David and I here on the show. So you guys, uh, you guys are rock stars. Thank you. This was awesome. Thanks, guys. Have a good week, everybody. David Green, you want to take us out? Yes, this is David Green for Scott Entrenched in Real Estate Trench. Jay, the Professor Scott and Brandon, the DIY Guy Turner signing off. You're listening to Bigger Pockets Radio, simplifying real estate for investors large and small. If you're here looking to learn about real estate investing without all the hype, you're in the right place. Be sure to join the millions of others who have benefited from BiggerPockets.com, your home for real estate investing online. The market is changing and finding your way can be tricky. Rates shift, headlines whirl, but your goal hasn't changed. You want financial freedom. And the best investors know it's not about timing the market, it's about time in the market. If you're ready to get into the real estate investing game or take your game to the next level, finding an investor-friendly agent is your next step. With BiggerPockets Agent Finder, you can find the right agent in minutes. Just head to biggerpockets.com deals and enter a few details about what and where you want to buy and BAM! 
instantly match with an investor-friendly agent who fits the bill. These local market experts can help you navigate the neighborhoods, analyze the numbers, and take action with confidence once and for all. This free resource is only available at biggerpockets.com deals. Get an agent, get the deal, and get closer to financial freedom at biggerpockets.com deals. That's biggerpockets.com deals to find your investor-friendly agent today. The content of this podcast is for informational purposes only. Past performance is not indicative of future results, and all hosts and participant opinions are their own. Investment in any asset, real estate included, involves risk. Use your best judgment and consult with qualified advisors before investing. Only risk capital you can afford to lose. BiggerPockets LLC disclaims all liability for direct, indirect, consequential, or other damages arising from reliance upon information presented in this podcast.